Greetings. Greetings to you all. I'm Fred Kemp, President and CEO of the Atlantic Council. And it's great to see such a full house. Uh, we realize uh, after this very quiet and unmomentous weekend that uh, there isn't much to worry about in the world. Um, seriously speaking, uh, we see this as uh, an inflection point in history as important as the end of World War I, World War II and what the Atlantic Council stands for, working constructively alongside friends and allies uh, to ensure constructive U.S. engagement in the world uh, remains as relevant as ever. We're delighted to be partnering again with Bill Lors and the Iran Project for our third major event, Bill, uh, on the Iran nuclear deal, and we've worked a lot even before that uh, in getting there in the first place. We at the Atlantic Council have been doing concentrated work on Iran since 2010 when we inaugurated um, an Iran task force. I want to salute Barbara Slavin, who's been at the uh, tippy point of the spear of getting all of that done. And I also want to salute Stu Eisenstadt, an executive, uh, a member of the executive uh, committee of the board of the Atlantic Council, and uh, with uh, Secretary Chuck Hagel, one of the co-chairs of the future of Iran International Advisory Council, uh, uh, the future Iran initiatives in International Advisory Council. Um, the effort uh, that we launched then is now that the initiative I just named. The fate of the nuclear agreement will be a key determinant of U.S.-Iran relations going forward and will have a broader impact on the Middle East and on nonproliferation more broadly. It has now been a year since the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action went into full implementation. The consensus is that Iran and the other parties to the agreement have largely met their obligations, but there is discontent about the impact of the deal on both sides. Iranians have not seen the economic benefits they expected, and the United States is concerned that Iran has not altered other policies regarding regional intervention and human rights. We've assembled two excellent panels to discuss both the nuclear agreement and the regional implications. We are also honored to welcome after the first panel, Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut to discuss the deal from the congressional point of view. And so we're very delighted that he will take time out of his very crowded schedule to join us. With that, I turn the podium over to Bill Lors to provide some welcoming remarks. Thank you, Fred, and thanks to the Atlantic Council and to my partner, Barbara Slavin, and, and the staff here, which is so remarkable. Uh, this is a well-run organization, and as you all know, it's a good place to come for these things. This is, as Fred said, the third time we've done this together. Uh, we like the partnership. It works for us. Uh, it gives us an important audience in Washington, and uh, we try to provide an important audience for this issue in New York. Um, this is the first time we've had one of these in which the uh, Iran nuclear deal isn't front page news. I'm hoping that the wisdom that will come out of this meeting will be such that it won't have to be or ever again be front page news. I think I'm being a little optimistic, but do what you can. Um, the final thing I'd say is that we have prepared for you a summary of this Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, which is a 159-page document. It's probably the most complex 
international nuclear agreement I've ever seen. And uh, we have taken it down to about three pages, and I hope it helps you understand what it's all about. So, Barbara, thank you very much for coming, all of you. Thanks, everyone, for, uh, for coming. Uh, and uh, as Bill said, we're delighted to have this collaboration again with the uh, Iran project. Um, before we get to our first panel, though, I wanted to say just a word about the, the news of the, of the past few days. Uh, many of us have been worried about the fate of the nuclear deal under the Trump administration, but I think we never anticipated that the first blow would come in the form of a ban on ordinary Iranians coming to the United States. Uh, the Iranian media is already calling this a violation of the JCPOA, and this is something we're obviously going to discuss on our panels, but I just wanted to say personally, as someone who's worked on Iran at the Atlantic Council for six years and has been visiting Iran for 20 years, that um, I hope the Trump administration will reconsider uh, the visa ban, or at least not extend it. Uh, and with that, I'm going to introduce our panelists for our first panel. Um, Carolyn Vicini is deputy head of the delegation of the European Union to the United States. She's a former Swedish diplomat and uh, oversees overall management of the delegation, including chairing a weekly meeting of DCMs for coordination among the 28 EU member states. Um, Carolyn will be followed by Mark Dubowitz, and I'm delighted that he accepted our invitation to come. Mark is the executive director of the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. He co-leads FDD's Center on Sanctions and Illicit Finance, and he's been very influential on Capitol Hill in terms of designing sanctions uh, on Iran, and he's also been a, a very prominent critic of Iran, so we welcome his, and of the JCPOA, so we welcome his voice. Uh, then we'll have Jim Walsh from uh, MIT. Uh, Jim has worked on nuclear issues uh, involving the Middle East and East Asia, and he's testified frequently on Capitol Hill on Iran and North Korea. And then finally, Ellen Leibson, um, distinguished fellow president emeritus at the Stimson Center. Uh, Ellen spent 25 years in U.S. government service, including stints on the National Intelligence Council, NSC, and policy planning staff of the State Department. Um, she uh, wrote an excellent paper for the Atlantic Council last year, which is on our website. I recommend it to you. It's called A New Strategy for U.S.-Iran Relations. Um, and finally, for those of you who are in the Twitter business, uh, the uh, hashtag is ACIran, and I hope that you will tweet uh, on this event. And we welcome you, and we welcome our panelists to the stage. Thank you. <clears throat> Okay. Well, there isn't much to talk about, is there? <laughs> um, Carolyn, first, thank you so much uh, for agreeing to, to be with us. When I think of the EU role in all of this, I think of uh, Kathy Ashton and Federica Mogherini and Helga Schmidt. Uh, so it's appropriate that we have a woman from the EU, I think, here. Uh, given the role that the EU played in, in organizing uh, and helping the negotiations along. So if you could just tell us from the European perspective, um, how well has the deal been implemented? Uh, what are the problems, the challenges that you see uh, going forward? Yeah, we, as, as was just uh, pointed out by Fred Kemp, um, this is, uh, we have just now passed the first anniversary of, of 
the implementation of the agreement. And therefore, I, I want to thank the Atlantic Council because I think this is very, very timely because I think it's just after, I mean, a year is a good time for a, for a first assessment. It's, we are often eager to want to go and assess things after one week and say, well, it works, it doesn't work. I think a year can give us some, uh, somewhat of a, of a perspective on, on how this is, is, is working. Uh, and for, for the EU, this has been um, a huge undertaking um, uh, in many senses, both the negotiations where the, the EU as such was, was very well, uh, very involved in, as you just described, we also have the EU member states who are engaged uh, in, in, this, um, in this agreement and were part of the negotiations. And, and it must be underlined that all the 28 member states have um, sort of uh, agreed to, to this and, and, and is a part of, of, um, of um, constructing the EU's views on, on the implementation of the agreement. We think it, it has been a successful first year. Um, Iran has, by, by and large, um, complied with the agreement. There had been a few minor um, issues. Those have been detected and corrected immediately, which we think is very good. I mean, uh, that, is, that is an important part. Uh, mistakes can always happen, and, and the important thing is how they are dealt with, and that they are dealt with promptly and, and, and in agreement. Um, we also are being very um, engaged in trying to provide um, the, the other side of the agreement, but because of Iran giving up their, their abilities to get to, um, to a nuclear weapon, um, they have asked for, for uh, relief of the lifting of the sanctions, which was done um, immediately uh, upon the implementation, but also, of course, to restart the trade so they get some economic benefit out of it. Um, there, uh, as you pointed out, this has been, there has been complaints. This is not going fast enough. This is not happening as it should, uh, etc. Well, there are different reasons for that. It's, um, there are, um, uh, the Iranian society um, and uh, their, um, their private sector is not very easy to deal with. It's not somebody you do quick business with. So. Yeah. Uh, there are many contacts that, due to the sanctions, have been laying down for, for many, many years. Those contacts have to be renewed um, and um, before you get to, to deals and before they are sort of, you can show them in numbers, it, it takes quite a while. Uh, there has also been um, some issues around the banking um, uh, system, and we have worked very intensely, intensively with, with our American uh, counterparts here to try to solve them and to try to provide guidance to the European banking system, where many are, for a reason, worried that if, if uh, they uh, do business with Iranian banks, that that will have repercussions on their, on their US business. And anybody can understand if you have to choose between the US and Iran um, what you choose. So there have been um, uh, a number of initial sort of obstacles, but that we are working um, uh, we are working um, uh, every day to, to solve, and, and we are very confident that, that Iran will see the advantages, and that Iran is also, by this, getting more people-to-people to people contacts, which we think is also beneficial for, for the country as such. Okay. Maybe I stop there, and we will stop get there. to yeah, the we'll, details. We'll, we'll go deeper on, on the next round. Uh, Mark, again, thank you for being here. Um, 
What is your impression of how well the deal has been implemented over the last year? And uh, in particular, what do you anticipate in terms of sanctions? Because we've heard that uh, many Republicans on Capitol Hill uh, want to impose uh, sanctions on other issues that uh, in some cases replicate the nuclear sanctions mm -hmm. or go beyond them. So uh, Barbara, first of all, thank you for inviting me. First time at the Atlantic Council. I want to congratulate you and Fred and others here on a, on a tremendously successful organization. And uh, I'm glad that you've brought together different perspectives and different voices. I think it's going to be critical in this new administration and this new era that you know, both deal critics and deal supporters kind of put our heads together and try to figure out the way forward. From my perspective as a deal critic, um, I think the deal has gone as expected, which is that Iranians are testing the deal by incrementally violating it to see what our response will be. But that ultimately, the Iranians actually have, the regime has no incentive uh, to violate the deal, certainly not yet, because it gives, the, it gives Iran a patient pathway to nuclear weapons as a result of these sunset provisions. So if, if Iran is smart, they won't violate the deal. They won't even test the deal incrementally. They'll just wait for these restrictions to, to disappear over time and it emerge with an industrial-sized nuclear program with near-zero nuclear breakout and advanced centrifuge-powered clandestine sneak-out, uh, an ICBM program, and a, and a, and a large economy, per, perhaps a trillion-dollar economy at that point, which will be, to some extent, immunized against our ability to use sanctions as a tool, of course, of power. So I think the deal from an Iranian perspective is going, going quite well. Uh, and I think we have to certainly be on, on guard as, as we move forward to deter these violations, but also to figure our way, our way out from under the deal. And I'll say a few more words about that in, in a moment. From, from my perspective, um, I think the Trump administration is, is adopting the right posture early out of the gate, which is not to abrogate the deal. Uh, I've been on record for, for many months now saying that that would be a big mistake. Mm -hmm. The deal should be kept. It should be vigorously enforced. The provisions that the Iranians are interpreting in their favor, provisions I think the, the United States has disagreed with, we should be very strict in interpreting the ambiguities in the deal. And then we should do what, what President Obama and Secretary Kerry said we always should do, which is use non-nuclear sanctions to deter Iran's malign activities in the region. And I think that's, if you were to predict where Congress and this new administration were to go in the next 12 months, um, my guess, and it's only a guess, would be that you'll see non-nuclear sanctions being the centerpiece of any new <clears throat> sanctions effort, both from Congress and from the new administration. And there's, and there's much to do on that front. As everybody knows, the Iranians have been testing missiles, including I saw reports, or a report today, that they've test-fired another missile, um, hostage-taking, supporting Bashar Assad's slaughter in Syria, supporting designated Shiite militias, uh, supporting the Houthi rebels. And, uh, and human rights abuses that have gotten worse, not better, since the JCPOA. So, so I think there's much that can be done outside the JCPOA, and I would expect that you'll see that from the new administration. Okay, very good. Um, Jim, uh, your perspective on how well the deal has been uh, implemented, and uh, given what Mark just said, uh, whether these kinds of sanctions, if you, even if you call them non-nuclear, mm -hmm. uh, will have the, the effect of undermining uh, the deal. And, I, and also the visa ban, frankly, because mm. uh, as I said, I think uh, Kahan newspaper this morning already called it a violation of the JCPOA. In fact, they said, uh, uh, they said that um, 
It's the result of the weakness of our country's negotiating team and the fruit of trusting the false promises of the United States. So that's not very helpful. <laughs> well, on that note, let me say thank you. Um, it's good to be here with friends, uh, with this esteemed panel. Mark and I have been on TV together so many times, it's so nice to be in person. This way we can actually, <laughs> we can hug. you know, <laughs> hug. I was grabbing your throat, whatever. Uh, and to thank the Atlantic Council and, and all of you. You know, I must say I'm, I'm delighted and stunned to see you all here. You know, it's a full house. I thought probably no one would care anymore. And yet you've all come out, which says something about you, I think. And it's, it may be a positive thing or a negative thing. I'm not sure <laughs> that you're JCPOA groupies. I guess is what it means. Uh, but it's, uh, I'm glad you're here because it is an important topic. And I would uh, say briefly a couple of things. Yes, it's the one-year anniversary, but we seem to forget we had two years of an interim agreement. Right? We're, we're three years into a nuclear agreement that the IAEA every month, every couple of months, has confirmed as being obliged with. That's three years of track record. And uh, that's pretty impressive. And when you... Put that together with the data, the social science data about the effect that agreements have, nuclear agreements have on nuclear behavior, I think that should give us some confidence going forward. We've had tremendous success in nuclear nonproliferation. Countries that were interested in weapons started down that path, stopped and turned back. A, a outstanding record. Uh, some 40 countries had shown interest in nuclear weapons, stopped and reversed course. Often that happens as a result of nonproliferation agreements. And here we have what is, in my view, the strongest nonproliferation agreement ever negotiated, stronger than the NPT, uh, stronger than the uh, PSI, stronger than the Libya deal. So we have a track record of success generally. We have a track record of success for three full years, verified by the IAEA. Uh, and then we have this agreement, which itself, I think, stands out compared with other agreements. But you know, that doesn't mean we're all going to get along and everything will be rosy. But this is, after all, a nuclear agreement. And it should be judged first and foremost by the nuclear components of the agreement and whether Iran is abiding by them. I, uh, Caroline mentioned it, I take a notice and heart in the, in the fact that there have been uh, disagreements. Uh, there have been incidents that have come up, just like with the U.S. and the Soviets during U.S.-Soviet arms control. There were agreements or disagreements or implementation issues that come up. And in every case, uh, we've been able to bring attention concerns about something, and those concerns have been resolved. Now, Mark's inclined to call that uh, testing the agreement. I, I don't see it that way. It, well, there wasn't any sort of prolonged... This isn't Saddam Hussein with prolonged... Uh, refusals and uh, dodging and all of that. The things have been resolved quite quickly, and, and I think that uh, that's a, a healthy sign. Now, I will take a moment and uh, talk about uh, what we might expect in the future. Marcus said that he expects, I must say that Critics have predicted everything except the, that the agreement will succeed. Uh, they predicted that there would be breakout. They would be predicted that there would be un, uh, undeclared facilities. They predicted salami tactics. They predicted, uh, no, the agreement's going to work well. Well, if you make a prediction about every outcome, you know, eventually you'll probably get one right. Uh, it, my view is that uh, when it comes to Iran's nuclear intentions, I follow the lead of the DNI the Director of National Intelligence. What does the DNI say? The DNI does not say Iran is chomping at the bit and waiting to build a nuclear weapon after 15 years. 
The DNI says, and has said repeatedly at high confidence since 2007, that Iran had a nuclear weapons program, that it halted in 2003, that it has not made a decision to build nuclear weapons. Repeatedly it has said that, and said that that decision is a political one, not a technical one. Because if you can enrich, if you know how to build a centrifuge, right, you can make nuclear weapons. You have a nuclear weapons capability already. But they had not made a decision about what to do with that. So I'm, I'm going to go with the DNI on this, about this judgment. And so the question is, how do we maintain that going forward? How do we strengthen that so that the path Iran ends up 5, 10, 15 years down the road is one where it's not even a consideration. It goes from not a decision to not a consideration. And it seems to me having success with the agreement in which all parties benefit is the way to achieve that. Now, uh, Mark has said that the, uh, the agreement is going well from an Iranian perspective. That's not what a lot of Iranians say. Uh, but, you know, they didn't like an extension of the sanctions uh, that were uh, extended by Congress. Uh, they've had complaints about the uh, implementation and whether they were getting sufficient banking sanctions relief, all the rest. So we hear a lot of complaining. But at the end of the day, I think both sides, all sides, I should say, because it's not a US agreement, it's an international agreement. All sides have come to the conclusion that this is in everyone's interest to pursue. And as long as we focus on that, as long as the agreement serves the interests of its parties, then it can be sustained and we will prevent Iran from attaining a nuclear weapon. The moment, though, we start to play at the edges and start to try to deny benefits promised under the agreement so that, not, so that parties do not receive the benefits, benefits they expect, then it will not be in the self-interest of those parties to stay in the agreement. So we may not like Iran. We didn't like the Soviet Union. But in the real world of international diplomacy, the, what you have to have is win-win. Both sides have to see it as in their self-interest in order to sustain this. So I hope that we don't take actions um, well-intentioned or ill-intentioned that Congress might take. You know, if you have a set of sanctions and you just cross out the word nuclear and you put in human rights or something else, but it's the same set of sanctions and you pass those, well, that's a shell game. And that's not going to be seen as being consistent with the agreement. Mm -hmm. If Iran is doing specific things that warrant specific uh, responses by the U.S., we are absolutely entitled under the agreement to use all, to, all the tools at our disposal. But I hope as we make choices about that, it'll be a more reasoned and particular set of judgments than I've seen discussed in the press and in the public so far. So let me pause there. I've gone on for too long, as usual. <laughs> but we, uh, but we, we've got a better person bad and clean up here, so she'll save me from myself, yeah. I hope. Yeah. Ellen, yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Put it in a broader strategic perspective. Uh, Suggestion, I'm hearing the suggestion that we need at some point to negotiate a follow-on agreement. Mm -hmm. uh, even though the, pre, uh, the preamble to the agreement says that Iran will never build nuclear weapons, uh, obviously given what Marcus said and, and what we hear, there is a lot of suspicion that Iran could just abide by the deal and then, you know, in 10, 15 years start to work uh, covertly on a nuclear weapon again. So mm -hmm. how do you see this sort of as a way to shore it up or improve it? Or is that something we should even be talking about now? So thanks, Barbara. So I do think that part of the conceptual, uh, not confusion, but the conceptual differences that we hear continuously in the debate over the Iran nuclear agreement is different ex 
different assumptions about what were Iran's intentions even during the negotiating period, whether in fact you accept the DNI's judgment that a decision had not yet been made, or whether others believe that this was a country that had already made the decision that nuclear weapons would be a strategic asset to a vulnerable country and that it was a legitimate national security choice that they could make. Um, so there's the sort of going back to what were the Iranians' intentions at the beginning. And then also, what did the final diplomatic uh, achievement, what were the parameters of that achievement? What was it intended to do and what was it not intended to do? And we seem to circle back to divergent expectations about what the agreement was intended to do. In the report that I did last year that you very kindly mentioned, I said, let's think of the agreement as a new baseline in US-Iran relations. It doesn't mean that it's sufficient to solve any of the other problems, but it does set a new reality and it creates um, a new context where American and Iranian officials can actually talk to each other. And I think one of the great worries of the handover to a new administration that has very strong views on Iran is that there wasn't enough value given to the continuity of those contacts. Of, so I worry that now we're in a post-nuclear agreement political environment that has some new dynamics to it. So I think it's not necessarily realistic to think that anybody has the stomach to go back to the negotiating table and say a formal new diplomatic process. I think that it's more likely to happen ad hoc mm -hmm. when the Iranians test certain provisions or when the IAEA or any one of the signatories believes that Iran is up to the line of compliance or non-compliance. I think in the end what we're going to have is ad hoc you know, problem solving. Mm -hmm. And nobody's mentioned yet the Joint Commission. Uh, I mean, you alluded to it indirectly, but um, there is a very interesting and important mechanism that I believe has met six times. Uh, I don't know how often, I think mm -hmm. they meet four times, um, four times, four times. Um, where any party to the agreement can bring issues. And uh, again, this is not, um, uh, the, the parties to the agreement are not peers in the sense that it's Iran that was in the penalty box. So it's not that each party has to demonstrate its own compliance as peers of Iran. It's really that Iran has to demonstrate first and foremost compliance and then there's an adjudication process if there was a misunderstanding about how long they could hold a quantity of heavy water before they had to export it, et cetera. So there are some, but that mechanism seems to be working at a tier below uh, you know, the cabinet level officials, um, and one would hope that uh, that could, could keep going. So, you know, in one of the uh, year-end assessments of the nuclear agreement, uh, one, one very fine analysis suggested that the narrowness and the specificity of the nuclear agreement was also a vulnerability because it didn't, it wasn't sufficient to solve all the other problems. I would say the narrowness and the specificity was a virtue and a strength of the agreement because it, for the first time after decades of non-transactional interaction with Iran, it gave us something concrete and measurable. We can say on the basis of objective analysis, are they complying or are they not complying? And that to me is a strength more than a weakness because all other aspects of US-Iran relations are in a, a much more subjective domain where it is in the eye of the beholder, how aggressive is Iran being in the region? You know, are the human rights violations, which unfortunately seem to be getting worse, not better, are those 
does, is Iran such an outlier in the region and in the world by human rights standards? What would make them more susceptible to changing their behavior on human rights, et cetera? So again, I think of the agreement as a concrete achievement that, is a, that sets a new baseline or a new reality to think about all these other problems. It does not solve the big Iran problem. There is still you know, a multifaceted challenge because Iran is, after all, a, you know, a revisionist power in the region. They like to say, oh no, we're now a status quo power. You know, we're for stability in the region. We're not for regime change in the region. But in fact, from the perspective of most other countries, Iran is challenging the order that, for what it's worth, as, as disorderly as the order may be. Um, and so it's, but it, in theory, to me, again, just last point, it is that ability to engage government to government um, that, in theory, creates a different and better opportunity to talk to Iran about all these other issues. It doesn't, it has no automaticity that any of those other problems can be solved by this agreement. And then I think we should, it's up maybe later in the discussion, we'll talk about these, these gray areas of mm -hmm. when Iran says mm -hmm. this is a violation. It's a violation of the spirit of the agreement, not necessarily the letter of the agreement. And how do we cope with that? Um, Caroline, uh, given how long it took to get this deal, uh, the many, many meetings, um, the hours and hours and hours, uh, the numbers of diplomats who were involved, is there any appetite in Europe with all the other problems Europe is dealing with now, such as Brexit and so on, for any kind of renegotiation? And is there any thought being given to how this deal would be extended, perhaps? No, I can say. Well, I, I think I can say with confidence that there is no appetite to to renegotiate it, and that has nothing to do with Brexit or anything else. It has to do with that we believe that this is a good deal. Um, it is the best deal we we could get. Uh, I do completely agree with Ellen that uh, the beauty of the deal is probably its narrowness. That it it's possible to to sort of co control it and contain it. Uh, we had maybe hoped that this would sort of, this deal would set off a spiral of better relations in the region. Uh, unfortunately, that has not happened, but there are also many other things going on um, and in the region at this time, so it's not a very propense time for, for, for better relations. Uh, we, we think uh, both Iran and others could have used it better in that sense. But what is important to us is that um, Iran is now, for, for uh, a number of years, deprived of the possibility to develop a nuclear weapon. And as we can see, history can change very quickly, uh, um, overnight, kind of. So we don't know where we are going to be when we come to the sort of further end of this. I think we have just passed one year or three years, depending on how you see <laughs> it, and, and we need to give it some more time. What is important is that uh, the EU and, and also, I must say, China and, and Russia engage in, in filling uh, sort of the other um, balance to, to make Iran um, keep up its, its promises. And I, I just want to say something. I, I spoke with a person who was deeply engaged into, in, in the negotiations on a very practical ground field level. And he said, and I, I will always remember that, you have to understand what the pride this was for Iran. We cannot really understand what a nationalistic pride it was for Iran to be able to develop a nuclear weapon. 
And now we are taking that away from them, or they are, they are refer or, or giving that away. And we have a group of, of people who were the sort of heroes of the country who all of a sudden are without a job practically. Mm -hmm. And it's up to the EU now to keep these people busy with good things and to, um, to put them on, on the peaceful uh, use of nuclear power, uh, nuclear safety, medical use of, of, of nuclear and other, to engage them in something that can sort of bring back their pride and national pride um, in this project. And, and I think that is a thought we, 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 mm -hmm. we seldom make. And, and I think we are very engaged on that track to provide alternatives. And that is something we remember from the Soviet Union when um, mm -hmm. the Soviet Union split up and we all were worried about mm -hmm. what was going to happen with the scientists, what was going to happen with the different nuclear sources that were spread mm -hmm. in a pretty uncontrolled way. And, and the US was very active in, in that work together with many of us Europeans. Mm -hmm. um, Mark, um, I've been having some chats with people on Capitol Hill in, in the last few weeks and uh, I've been hearing that uh, on the Republican side, the intention is to put so much pressure on Iran that it walks away from the deal. I've heard this expressed to me several times now. Uh, is that indeed uh, what you see as a strategy uh, in Congress uh, on the Republican side? And uh, if so, what is the logic behind it? Because we, I mean, hear a lot about repealing and replacing things. Uh, <laughs> these days, and given how long it took to negotiate this deal, um, given that, that there is no real appetite for renegotiation, what would be the benefit to the United States of trying to push the Iranians uh, out of the deal? So, Barbara, I don't know who you talked to on the Hill. Um, I think the overwhelming uh, number of members that I speak to and staffers, um, I think the, the strategy is, is twofold. The strategy is, first of all, to pass a whole series of non-nuclear sanctions that are fully consistent with the JCPOA. Again, as the Obama administration repeatedly assured us. And you know, I, I would also give some credit to the folks that are designing these sanctions, both uh, in Congress and in a new Treasury Department, that they have a pretty good idea of what's technically and legally possible. Can you give a couple of examples, perhaps, of the sorts of things that sure. they're contemplating? Well, I, you should invite them to, to talk about what they're mm -hmm. contemplating. Uh, I can tell you what I recommended okay. uh, publicly, and that is that, for example, and we all agree whether, whether you think that there is, uh, Rouhani is a moderate or not a moderate, and there's been a lot of discussion in this town about that. Everybody can agree the Revolutionary Guards are a malign force, uh, not only in Iran, but, but in the region. It, it may surprise you or not that there have only been 52 IRGC entities that were ever designated. So 25 individuals, 25 companies, and two uh, academic institutions that were being used by the IRGC for, for nefarious purposes. Um, so what I've recommended is that there be a massive expansion of IRGC sanctions, uh, including the number of designations. There are literally thousands of IRGC comp companies, front companies. Uh, my organization has a database. I think we're up to about 850 IRGC companies that we've identified and meet the 50% threshold test for designations. And there are, there are thousands of more. And if you've seen the, the bills that were introduced in the last Congress, you see that there were ideas along these lines about increasing the number of designations, actually designating the IRGC as a terrorist organization, um, 
They're not currently designated under U.S. law, but Quds Force is. You certainly they would qualify for designation under either 13224, the executive order for material support for terrorism, or as a foreign terrorist organization. So again, recognizing the IRGC as a terrorist organization, designating it as such, and massively accelerating the number of IRGC designations would be a useful place to start. And the reason for those designations would be what? Support for terrorism, missile tests? Okay. Human rights abuses, you name it. So I think that the RGC is certainly not disappointing for those, of you, for those who predicted that they would continue their malign activities, uh, in fact, would accelerate them. And, and unfortunately, as, as I think the New York Times and Reuters have reported, the RGC to date has been the primary beneficiary of some of the deals I've gotten signed. I also want to make some point on this, because I think we need to put this to rest. The, the, the Iranian regime has been complaining they're not getting the economic relief they were promised. Well, they were never promised economic relief. Right. The United States, mm -hmm. I think, quite wisely said, we're not going to be responsible for economic outcomes. Here's our obligation. We're going to de-designate a number of entities. We're going to suspend or lift sanctions on sectors and, and key pillars of your oil economy and your financial sector. But we're not going to guarantee you outcomes. And in fact, if you look at the outcomes, um, the Iranians are in a much better position than they were in 2013 when they were about four to six months away from a severe balance of payments crisis when inflation unofficially was at 80 percent, when they had lost over 6.5 percent in GDP, um, where you know, oil export revenues had, had declined at the time significantly, um, their economy, in terms of their macroeconomic fundamentals, were in very, very bad shape. Now, if you fast forward to today, things aren't great by any measure. Things are a lot better by every measure. Mm -hmm. right? The economy is growing 5 to 6 percent. Inflation is down into single, into single digits. Uh, they've gotten access to over $100 billion in foreign exchange reserves, so they no longer face the prospect of a severe balance of payments crisis. So I think it's a big mistake, whether you're a deal supporter or a deal critic, to play into this Iranian narrative that they never got what they were promised. Mm -hmm. They never were promised economic outcomes. And their economic outcomes have actually been, uh, by any measure, not, not bad. They've, they've avoided severe economic crisis, mm -hmm. and they're on a path to modest recovery. So I, th I think it's important to underscore that regardless of how we, uh, regardless of your position on this deal and regardless of, of your support or, or lack of support for new sanctions. Mm -hmm. Of course, perception is everything. We had an event here last week where uh, we had some new poll data uh, that had been released that showed that, uh, that most Iranians thought that they had not gotten you know, what they were promised, and uh, they tended to blame the United States for discouraging European companies. Uh, from returning to Iran and setting up new barriers that were as bad as the old ones. So you, what you say is certainly technically correct, but of course the perception well, is different. You know, I think Barbara, as, as, as any politician knows, always a big mistake to overpromise and underdeliver. <laughs> yes. Uh, our politicians do it all the time. I think uh, President Rouhani has, has done the same thing, yeah. and he's gonna, he may face the domestic consequences of that. So I, also let me, since I'm, I, I yes. think I'm the only one on the panel who's, Opposed to, to be a deal critic, so there's you know there's obviously a lot to respond time. to. Okay. Yeah. A little yeah. more time, yeah, yeah. I won't take a lot of it. I, I think it's I think we're going to spend a lot of time. It seems like we're going to on this panel kind of relitigating the JCPOA, and and I'm happy to do that. And been involved in lots of interesting debates on this, um, but I do think it's important, and I do adopt the the position that we shouldn't be abrogating the deal. That we cannot fall. I don't think we should fall again into this trap. That just because the Iranians are saying we're not going to renegotiate the deal, and just because the Europeans are saying we're not going to renegotiate this deal, 
that we should all just sort of throw up our hands and say, well, I guess we're not renegotiating this deal, so we're going to have to live with this deal. Mm -hmm. And I think that there are, there's a big mistake in, in assuming that. I think there's a big mistake in assuming that in light of what a Trump administration has said repeatedly. And that is that this deal, in its very design and its very architecture, uh, provided some short-term benefits, but in the medium and the long term is very dangerous for U.S. national security. Because this deal includes, as I said, these key sunset provisions, mm -hmm. which the Iranians were very smart to negotiate, which ultimately gives Iran an industrial-sized nuclear weapons capability. Now, that doesn't mean the Iranians are going to actually use that capability. It doesn't mean they've made a decision to build a nuclear weapon, though one would suggest that given the, their decades-long record of nuclear mendacity, uh, they weren't in the business of building a civilian nuclear program. They're clearly in the business of building a capability. Mm -hmm. And the deal itself is going to give them a very dangerous capability, which I think we should all be cognizant of. And again, it's an industrial size capability. It means that they're going to have unlimited enrichment capacity. It gets, means that they have the ability to build an unlimited number of heavy water reactors. It means that they will be, as President Obama himself admitted, they will be literally uh, days, if not uh, hours, away from a nuclear weapons okay. breakout. I think we get we get the so point. So, <laughs> can I just can I just finish? Sure. So, I think we've got to we've got to we've got to think through how do we set up a strategy where we address some of the fundamental flaws of the deal. And it's worth noting, and we we talk about this later. There's a history in the Cold War of us negotiating follow-on agreements with the Soviet Union sure. while they had thousands of two nuclear missiles aimed at our city. The notion that well, this is a sui generis situation in the history of arms control where we can't foresee or assume that there's going to be a follow-on agreement just because the other party is saying today they want to do it, I think would be a big mistake. Okay. I, I want to bring our audience into this uh, now because we have a very packed day, but I wanted to first call on uh, Konstantin Sidyednikov, if you would raise your hand, we'll bring a microphone to you. Konstantin is head of the political and military section of the Embassy of the Russian Federation. We had asked the Russian ambassador to participate uh, in this event, and he, he could not, but um, I'd love to have your thoughts. Do you think it's possible, following, following the old U.S.-Russia model, that we could have some follow-on agreements to the JCPOA? And, uh, yeah. First, first of all, thank you, Barbara, and thank you to the Atlantic Council to give me the opportunity to speak uh, before such an Distinguished audience. Hold it closer to your mouth. Oh, it's, okay. is that better? Yes. Yeah. 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 Well, th thank you first of all to the Atlantic to the Atlantic Council and to Barbara yourself to giving <clears throat> to give me the, the opportunity to speak before such a distinguished audience and such a distinguished panel. Uh, first, I would like to say a couple of you know um, uh, general points on how we access uh, on how we assess the first year of the GCPA political implementation. First of all, we believe that this is a real success. Uh, we see that everybody complies and do its heart and do its best not to violate. With regard to the Iranians, it is confirmed fully and fully proved by the IAEA. Uh, of course, during the last year we had some minor issues, but we have the Joint Commission mechanism to deal with these issues, and it also proved its, its, its efficiency, and it was very, very helpful and instrumental in you know, fine-tuning, fine if, if, if I could call it so. Uh, Russia, <coughs> as a state, has a very uh, active participation in, in the GCP realization, as all of you know, we made an arrangement with the Iranians to ship out the stockpile, and we have this uh, separate arrangement with them to converse the uh, former enrichment facility at Fordow 
uh, for production of stable isotopes, and we're well underway. I should tell you, we're going forward regardless of whatever we see around. So our general assessments of all the situation around the GCPA in its first year, that it's quite, quite positive, and it was also confirmed um, by the Joint Commission meeting, the last one, which took place on the 10th of January in Vienna. Everybody shared this positive assessment overall. <clears throat> With regards to renegotiating different, uh, different elements, I personally do not think that it's, that, that it's possible at, uh, at this point. I personally took part, I was, a, I was a member of Russian expert team to those negotiations, and I remember how they, how they happened. It was, a it was a really, really unique exercise, and the atmosphere was special there, and it took a lot of efforts uh, from all the parties. I'm afraid in the current situation we will not be able to, you know, uh, uh, to repeat this exercise. But once again, this is my personal assessment. Okay, thank you very much, I appreciate that. Uh, Harlan, I think you had a question. Well, why don't we go to you? And Wait for the microphone. Uh, I'm Harlan Ullman with the Atlantic Council. Uh, thank you for your contributions. Uh, if this past weekend is representative of how the Trump administration may pursue foreign policy, given the sort of rough ride with Mexico and the situation with refugees, it is not inconceivable that for whatever reasons the Trump team could, could conclude to abrogate the JCPOA under whatever circumstances. So let's assume in a contingency that the United States Trump administration pulls out from the JCPO. Could you speculate on what the consequences might be for the other signatories, for Iran, for the region, mm -hmm. and the future of sanctions, mm -hmm. please? I'm going to give that to you, Carolyn, because how would the EU react if there's no, <laughs> no violation, but the US says, nope, we're out of it? Thank you. First of all, I, I believe that, that uh, this administration will get people in place. Uh, who are specialized in, in all these different areas. We have a lot of uh, competence all over in the administration on, on this, and I think they uh, hopefully will, will uh, use that, that competence. So, um, and, and what the first things we have heard, it was after the, the, the phone call with, with King, uh, King, King Salman of Saudi Arabia yes, yesterday, was yeah. that there was no immediate um, worry about, uh, about this direction that you, that you are pointing at. So we have to, to give the, the Trump administration the benefit of the doubt, abs absolutely. Then the EU is not alone in this. We have R Russia, we have China, we have uh, the other um, EU countries who are partners of this, and, and there is certainly um, not unilateral, anything unilateral for the EU to do in a situation as such. I think what, what the HRVP has said is that we are, uh, if if, High representative for foreign yeah, policy. Exactly. Okay. Which yeah. is the EU's foreign minister, so to say, Mrs. Mogherini, is that if this would happen, we would certainly look to try to keep the agreement uh, going anyhow. How does, how, if that would at all be possible, that's another question. I think it's a very complicated agreement, uh, and um, whether, you know, treaty wise, um, when it comes to international law, et cetera, that would at all be possible. It has been also passed through the UN Security Council. I cannot, I'm not expert enough to tell. But I think there is a, certainly um, for the EU, we believe that this is the right way to avoid that uh, Iran develops uh, <coughs> nuclear weapons, which we think would be very um, uh, dangerous for the region and for the world. And therefore, we, are, we, we do want to 
try to do everything we can to maintain this, this agreement. Okay. Yeah, that is exactly another Actually, question. you could ask uh, Ali uh, Vaez, who's <laughs> sitting next to you. Ali, do you want to grab the microphone? Ali is with the International Crisis Group, and he's uh, followed the nuclear talks very closely. Thank you very much, Barbara. Um, well, it's hard to predict uh, how the Iranians are going to react, but I think they have three options. They can either play victim, uh, trying to drive a wedge between the U.S. and the EU, try to, uh, in that way, neutralize new U.S. sanctions. Uh, but they can also retaliate. They can retaliate by reviving their nuclear program, or they can retaliate regionally. Let's remember that uh, the U.S. forces and Iranian forces are co-located in many places in Iraq and Syria. Uh, and that would be, of course, the beginning of, a, of an escalatory cycle on both sides that would revive the nuclear crisis altogether. Uh, and, and that's precisely what I want to ask Mark, because uh, I wonder how you think the Iranians would respond to what you call non-nuclear sanctions, which I, I think at the end of the day, it's very hard to define non-nuclear sanctions that are also as effective as the nuclear sanctions once were. Uh, but how do you think the Iranians would react? Because many say that the critics who were not able to kill the deal with a gunshot are now trying to kill it with a thousand paper cuts. Is that really the strategy? And second, um, on sunset uh, clauses, I think, Mark, you're not a critic of the JCPOA. You're, you're a critic of uh, the MPT. Uh, because at the end of the day, if a country is in compliance with the most rigorous inspection mechanism ever implemented, for 15 years or more, if you take into account the interim agreement, do you still expect that country to be treated as a second-class citizen among other MPT member states? Thanks. Good question. Well, Mark, you're on the spot now, I guess. <laughs> Thanks, Alex. Good, good to see you, by the way. Um, so lot, lots in that. I mean, I think, first of all, it, it absolutely is possible to distinguish between nuclear and non-nuclear sanctions, because it's possible to distinguish between nuclear and non-nuclear behavior. And so when we talk about non-nuclear sanctions, we're talking about using sanctions to respond to a whole range of Iran's malign activities that are outside of a nuclear deal and outside of Iran's nuclear program. And I can tell you there are lots of ways you can design very effective sanctions uh, that are outside of the nuclear deal, that are non-nuclear sanctions to respond to Iran's support for terrorism, its missile tests, its human, right, human rights abuses, et cetera. I, I'm not going to go into detail, but I'm sure you'll, you'll probably see um, in March or April, some of these sanctions that are coming out of Congress and, and may come out of the, the Trump administration even earlier. So absolutely, and again, I think we should not fall into the trap of the Iranian narrative. I, I know the Iranian narrative on this. They came out with a letter I think in 2015 when the Iranian ambassador sent a letter uh, which was very clear, which we will treat all sanctions as a violation of the deal. So the notion here is that we, we have to accept the proposition that if we designate individuals who are responsible for brutal human rights repression, right, for abusing, torturing, and murdering Iranian citizens, then we should accept the proposition that that is a violation of the JCPOA. I'm sure you wouldn't accept that. I wouldn't accept that. I can't imagine too many people in the room would accept that proposition. We are absolutely able to use all instruments of American power to respond to, American, to Iranian aggression. And that would include, but not be limited, to non-nuclear sanctions. I think on the issue of the, the sunset provisions, look, Reality is, is Iran is in a class, not by itself, but it's in a class with North Korea. In a, it's a country that has engaged in decades of nuclear mendacity. It is a country that, <laughs> that, that conducted uh, militarization and weaponization of its program. 
And by the way, it is a country that never fully resolved the 12 outstanding questions that the IAEA. Mark, Mark I'm going to have to stop you there because, you know, when the UN resolution that's, that sanctified the JCPOA was passed, it took Iran out of the doghouse as far as the UN Security Council was concerned. That was a key demand of the Iranians. So no, they are no longer in the same boat with, with North Korea. You may, you may say that they did not answer these questions to all of our satisfactions, and I think that's, that's very clear. But from a UN perspective, they're out of the doghouse, and of course they, you know, they haven't developed and, and tested nukes, which North Korea has done. So you're trying to say that Iran is still in the doghouse, and the whole purpose of the JCPOA, from Iran's point of view, was yeah. to get out of this. Well, again, Barbara, <laughs> Ali asked me my, my, my opinion on this, my perspective, and I, I, I think it'll be a perspective that'll be shared by the Trump administration. So we, we can have this debate, but I'm sure you're more interested to know going forward as a matter of U.S. policy. I think that there are serious concerns that these questions were not resolved, hmm. that Iran's nuclear program, um, that there, there are scientists and there are sites and there are documentation that we never were able to actually access, and I don't see the Trump administration giving Iran a clean bill of health, and I certainly don't see a Trump administration accepting that this Iranian regime is going to be entitled, as a matter of these deeply flawed sunset provisions, to emerge with an industrial-sized nuclear program with near-zero nuclear breakout and an advanced centrifuge clandestine sneak-out option. I, I don't think they'll accept it, and so the real question will be is, do I think they'll abrogate the deal? No. I don't think they'll abrogate the deal, but I do think they'll use the Joint Commission. I do think they'll use non-nuclear sanctions. I do think they'll have a zero-tolerance policy with respect to Iranian violations. And I think that there'll be an attempt to lay the predicate for pressure, not to drive the Iranians away from the table, but to, to lay the predicate for a follow-on negotiation to address some of the fundamental flaws of the deal that both we see and the Iranians see. If the Iranians are not getting the sanctions relief they want, then there's an opportunity to come to the table, negotiate a JCPOA too, and get the relief they want, but that's going to require concessions. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really important point. Jim, I just wanted you to come in on, you, yeah. you're, you know more about North Korea than most well, people in this room. Um, well, let me, let me talk first about, I, I think there's some confusion here. So the notion that Iran is going on year 15 to build an industrial scale enrichment uh, capacity is a guess. Right? I mean, you don't know that that's going to happen. No one knows if that's going to happen or not. I also find well, it sort entitled of... entitled to. Well, the, well, sure. Being entitled and doing are different things. Number two, wow. you don't need... An, I mean, what state built an industrial-sized enrichment capacity to have a nuclear weapons program? South Africa had a tiny program. The North Koreans had a tiny program. This, this is a... Uh, industrial scale has nothing to do with whether you can build a nuclear weapon or not. And as the DNI has already okay. pointed out, they already know how, they have the capacity to do it if they choose to do it. it. The whole idea that we can technically limit this, that was gone a long time ago. That was gone after they built the second thousandth centrifuge. Right. This is a political problem. Right. And the no, idea no. that we're going to solve this with technical limits on their program is just not true. At the end of the day, the best way to prevent Iran from becoming a nuclear weapon state is for it to see that it's in its interest not to become a nuclear weapon state. That's what the agreement is really about. That's what the NPT is about. That's how these agreements work. Let me say on sanctions. I think uh, Mark is absolutely right, and brave to be here with you know, so many contending voices, and absolutely right to say that the U.S. reserves all policy instruments to deal with the challenges that Iran poses. But context is very important here. Right? How do we judge whether something has the intention of undermining the deal or simply a response to 
behavior uh, that Iran is taking that we don't like. You know, analogously today, if you say all through your campaign you want a Muslim ban, you want a Muslim ban, you want a Muslim ban, and then you have an immigration order and you say this is not a Muslim ban, it's going to look that way to people, okay? It technically may not, but it's certainly going to look that way. Now, it seems to me if we want to stop Iranian behavior, that's a valid public policy question, but we don't, it, this knee-jerk thing that says they do something bad, sanctions, that makes no sense to me. I mean, the academic literature on sanctions correcting human rights violations, not very good. In fact, evidence would suggest it makes them worse, not better. On things that, that Iran sees as its national self-interest, like its military, I don't think you're going to sanction them away from a missile program when Iraq shot missiles at them during the Iran-Iraq war. I just don't think that's going to work. Now, you, could, you should think about that as a policy instrument, but you should assign some probability here. What is the probability this is going to achieve our policy objective? And then you weigh it against the costs. So the cost here is we can sanction the hell out of the uh, IRGC and we can try to cripple them. So then do they become a voice for nuclear God, restraint in Iran? Is, is that how it works? That's, rather than, as you point out, they seem to be benefiting from the agreement that would seem to suggest that they have a self-interest in its continuation. Isn't that actually what we want to have happen, is the agreement to continue rather than fall apart? Now, I agree absolutely that we should consider follow-on agreements. I think that's fabulous. But we shouldn't confuse follow-on agreements and renegotiation. Yes. Mm -hmm. So you don't come out after the first 365 days and, uh, and say, I want to do it over. That's rene renegotiation. You know, you let, you let this sit for a while. Hopefully, you build some sustainable relations so that we're just not insulting each other every other day, a little trust. And then you say, you know, year three, year five, how can we make this better? How can we make it better for you? How can we make it better for me? But you don't do it, you know, before the first, first birthday has passed. And so I think we're not going to renegotiate because if we, we call that meeting, we'll be the only ones there. <laughs> you know, and that'll be making so, it really tough. So, Jim, we all agree that we're going to negotiate a follow-on agreement, a JCPOA 2, mm -hmm. and, and we agree it shouldn't happen in the first 100 days, and we agree it should happen when the United States has built, number one, the negotiating leverage so we can actually negotiate mm -hmm. a proper follow-on agreement, and number two, we've worked very closely with our allies to lay the Yes, the, the table exactly. so that we can actually negotiate this. I think we're all in agreement. Yeah, I would add a few more things to that, but yes, you, I, would agree, with the, I yeah. would agree with those elements. There yeah. are other elements that would be important as well. But yes, I think uh, I, I've I th said I that from you, the beginning. Yeah, you hit on something which working with our allies, I mean, the nuclear, the, the, the sanctions did not really begin to impact Iran until the Europeans and the Japanese and the South Koreans came on board and stopped buying their oil. That's what, what? For, that's what A, did that's it. not true. So, so, A, that's not you know, true. And B, I'm, just, just let's, let's 2012. I, spent, I spent a lot of time working on sanctions the past 13 years. Let, let's just remember the sequencing of this. Right? The sequencing of this is that the United States put in place very powerful secondary sanctions. They went around the world, particularly the US Treasury Department, went around the world and read the riot act to financial institutions not to do business with Iran. They then passed, then they imposed billions of dollars of fines on banks that violated Iran sanctions. U.S. Congress then came in 2010 and passed very powerful secondary sanctions, financial sanctions through SASADA, and then began an escalation where Congress began to pass tougher and tougher sanctions. At the same time, right, you had this powerful instrument of coercion 
where European companies and Asian companies were beginning to fear that they were going to get a cut off from the U.S. market, everybody was afraid that the Israelis were going to bomb Iran. And so all of us were looking for a non-nuclear or, say, like non-military way out of, out of this crisis because we all feared that an Israeli military strike would lead to massive escalation. Mm -hmm. And so the Europeans finally came to the table recognizing they needed a made-in-European solution because they didn't want Israeli military strikes and they didn't want U.S. financial sanctions and billions of dollars of fines being imposed on their, on their companies. And then the Europeans came to the table and they absolutely they put yeah, in sanctions. 2012 was the real you know, the so, national so let, defense. Let's remember yeah. the, the sequencing of this. The Europeans finally came once we were pretty far up the escalation curve because they recognized these, these threats. And so when we talk about reconstituting pressure so that we can get a JCPOA too, of course we have to work with the Europeans and our allies to ensure they're on board. But one should never underestimate, number one, the power of US financial sanctions. And number two, forget about an Israeli military strike. As somebody who supports sanctions, not military strikes, one should always fear a US military strike under the Trump administration, which could begin with an escalation in the Gulf the next time an IRGC attack boat harasses one of our Navy ships and uh, President Trump orders Secretary Mattis to, to blow that out of the water. Then you could imagine an escalation that leads to military confrontation. And so when you talk about non-nuclear sanctions, that may be the least confrontational, coercive <laughs> yeah. instrument want, wanna, that we may face in the next four years. Do you want to react to any of that, yeah, Caroline? Of course. There's, there's always a final solution to everything. Huh? Uh, you, can, you can always escalate everything as... as as far as, as, as one wishes, and, and, and the end is something that we all want to avoid, I think. Uh, I think it's, what is important is that to understand that this deal, it takes, it takes two to tango, and we, if we don't keep the Iranians on board, um, well, that there is no purpose with the deal. Uh, and um, therefore, I also want to point out, so it's, so it's been said, that the EU still maintains sanctions on Iran for human, or rights. For human rights and terrorism. So we haven't lifted all, all our sanctions. Uh, but it's, it certainly um, needs, um, I think, and, and we work with China, we work with Russia, uh, to try to maintain a sort of um, positive incentive uh, for Iran to, to maintain this. This will, of course, be <coughs> more complicated if the pressure increases from, from, the, from the US side. Yeah. Um, that, that's clear. And I cannot say where the break point is for, for um, something like that. And that is, of course, to the US side, the US Congress has to take that into, into consideration uh, because there is, there is just so much you can do with, with, with the carrot if, if the stick is beating faster and faster. Um, and, and that is, that is hmm. political judgment where, where um, but, but certainly the other partners of the deal, and we have not, I must repeat, I, I prefer to remain in good faith uh, of, of this new administration that we will be able to work very well together um, and that we will be able also to discuss this with, uh, with the members of Congress openly um, and um, that we will be able to maintain this deal moving forward. And um, the further we get into the deal, I think, the better the better it is. Mm -hmm. Did you want to add something, Ellen? Or? Yeah, I was just going to say, I thought that um, Mark's chronology of how sanctions worked 
was very useful and worth reminding ourselves that this did happen under an administration that wanted to engage with Iran. Okay, yeah. so coercive diplomacy worked. Um, yet, the Iranians would tell the story differently. Sure. They would say that they were ready to talk when they were ready to talk, and that might have had to do with some of their technological achievements, not just the economic pressures. So we've got a Rashomon problem here of what is it that brought people to the table and what were their assumptions about the other actor. I guess what I find a little bit disheartening is the notion that it is very, you know, there is a profound lack of trust. The Iranians are doing more stuff that we don't like. Um, the problem seems in a way to be getting worse, not better. Yeah. Um, and I guess I do have, if we revert back to an all punitive uh, psychology about dealing with Iran, we haven't learned a lot from history, okay? Mm -hmm. It seems to me that we still need to be a little self-critical of decades that went by when we did not succeed in changing the Iranian calculation of what was in their interest, as you said. How do we get under their skin? How do we get them to rethink uh, what's in their interest? And maybe that's beyond our capability. Maybe Iran always wants to be an outlier country in a way. The revolutionary fervor is at least alive and well for some, not for many, mm -hmm. but um, the, the, maybe this Iran cannot change in the direction that we wish that it could. So I guess I'm taking away from this, uh, you know, it's a little bit turning the clock back to mm -hmm. a mindset about managing the Iran challenge in ways, and that maybe the Jikpoa survives as a, as a minor piece of the bigger puzzle, mm -hmm. um, but that that larger story is getting darker, not lighter. I, I think it's a great point. And I, I would, again, I would recommend not going back to an all punitive approach. I'd go back to the Obama approach, which was a dual track approach, which is using punitive measures like sanctions and hopefully under a Trump administration, other instruments of American coercion beyond sanctions, and also offering the Iranians all the time an opportunity to sit down and negotiate a follow-on agreement that addresses the fundamental flaws of the agreement as we see it and, and as they see it. And I think that's an opportunity to go back, not back to the, the all-punitive, yeah. but to actually offer a, a dual path. Mark, would you support a complete lifting of U.S. primary sanctions on Iran if it were to take steps that would actually you know, forswear forever its ability to make a nuclear weapon. And, and you were satisfied with that. Well, first of all, the Iranians forswearing their, their right or their, um, their right never to build a nuclear weapon is, for me, not a guarantee of anything. The Iranian forswearing anything. For example, if they agreed to have no more than 300 kilograms of low-enriched uranium Look, in I, perpetuity, in which case they could, could not, yeah. you know, build a nuclear weapon. Look, I'm, I'm not going to start, you know, a negotiation about what this JCPOA <laughs> agreement should look like. I think actually that is a great way that for deal opponents and deal supporters to come together and to start to think through from a policy perspective what an agreement would look like, what are we prepared to do, what do we think they're prepared to do? And by the way, I, on, on what they're prepared to do, I, I think we should not fall into the trap that the Obama administration did, which is where we start to negotiate with ourselves. Mm -hmm. And this notion that we will only ask something that we think they're prepared to give, I, I think that's a big mistake. By the way, I, I completely agree with your analysis on this, on how we, um, what brought the Iranians to the table in the first place. I mean, I absolutely think uh, sanctions brought them to the table. I think that's something the DNI agrees with. But I also think that one of the biggest things that brought them to the table was our willingness to give them upfront 
a major concession, in fact, two major concessions. One was on enrichment mm -hmm. and to abandon decades of US policy on enrichment. And number two was to actually give them a, um, a way out of these permanent restrictions on their nuclear program, which again, were decades of US policy, that the construct that we used to have was that the Security Council would vote in the affirmative to lift restrictions on Iran's program. And the United States and France and other countries had a veto on that. We actually, Secretary Kerry, others, offered these huge concessions at the beginning of the negotiation, uh, which I think was a big mistake. It absolutely brought them to the table, but it resulted in a deeply flawed yeah. deal with sunset provisions and uh, an enrichment capacity. I that's thought going we were going to relitigate the JPO, but I do have something to say here. You know, uh, I, I have lots to say, but I'll keep it to one thing. <laughs> no, you won't. Uh, it's a, that's not an unreasonable guess. So Mark said something. Now, he may have just misspoke. It's, I can tell you I misspoke, misspeak when you're up in front of an audience or on TV. But I could, he, he did or he didn't. But if the Iranians are listening, this is what they heard, it, heard him say. We need to increase our leverage on Iran. We need to put on the pressure so that when we go into a negotiation, uh, for uh, uh, JCPOA 2.0, we can use this pressure and get an agreement we want. Now, that sure sounds to me like we're using sanctions for a nuclear agreement, even though that's prohibited under the JCPOA. <laughs> now, no. uh, you know. I, I didn't misspeak. Well, Mark, Mark, I did not misspeak, well, and that let, is absolutely not in, in contravention of the JCPOA. Well, I think for the cat's us, out of the bag, Wait a second. Wait a second. The notion that we cannot pressure the Iranians in any way, in any way, because of the nuclear deal means, means what I always suspected it meant was that we were going to paralyze U.S.-Iran policy. We were effectively going to... Mark, the we have primary sanctions on Iran. We no. already have enormous but sanctions. But clearly the idea that we're using sanctions on human rights and this other stuff, and it's purely because of that, and it's not to get leverage over a nuclear... Well, Go that ahead. just went away, my friends. That just... No, that's no. up in smoke. Guys, unfortunately, I yes. hate to tell you... I tried to. I hate to tell you, but, but uh, our, our keynote speaker, I believe, is, is about to arrive. Yes? Do we have time for one more question, Ben? Or I feel... One? I'm sorry we ate yeah. up all the time. That's right. So we have time for one more question. I'm going to go right here and uh, wait for the microphone, if you would. Do we have a microphone? Yeah. Pass it down. Yeah. Well, as, as a person who spent a good bit of time in Iran and has lived and worked with people in Iran on higher education. Just hold it oh. your mouth. Um, my specialty is higher education in Iran and the U.S. Um, and at least from my perspective, I must say I very much agree with uh, Ellen and Mark's point of view, and well, Caroline's as well, that respect is a basic necessity in the situation. Context is huge. I think the idea of technically muddling the Iran agreement, the, 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 the nuclear agreement with all of the other objections we have to their behavior is a hugely dangerous thing to do. Uh, everyone thinks, I think, that the current agreement works well. It is well constructed. It specifically separates all of those very important issues from the other issues precisely in order to get nuclear proliferation done. Tom, do you have a uh, question? Yes. So my question is, uh, in the, in the, uh, in the uh, what, what possible benefit could there be and what can we do to uh, educate the, uh, the anti-agreement folks on the, on the Hill, as I represent the National um, Peace Corps Association from Iran, mm -hmm. um, and I think we need to educate people on the Hill to the best we can. The context and respect is where we need to go, and I don't know how to do it, given the kind of very dangerous idea that somehow muddling human rights and other things, which are huge, 
with, with the nuclear agreement is going to achieve anything other than disaster. Okay. Uh, Carolyn, I know that the, the EU and European diplomats in general are, are trying to do this. Others are trying to do this. Yeah, I think uh, we, are, we are looking to uh, engage with the new Congress now uh, if they and when they start to, to think about uh, doing this. Um, we, we are a bit waiting for to see what, what comes out of this new administration as well. But, but we are certainly um, uh, ready to go up again. We were very uh, present there in view of, of, of um, uh, the, the decision on the GCPOA in, 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 in Congress. And I think we, we were able to, to help uh, together with, with Russia and with China. We, we were uh, present there. And we are ready to do that again because we think this is, this is worth defending. And we also believe that um, we can help out in Iran by engaging with Iranians of, of, uh, and the Iranian society at at, um, at a breath in, on different topics, higher education, uh, environment, uh, industrialization, small and business, uh, and many other areas where we, we go in uh, from the EU side to, to engage and also try to build, uh, build um, confidence in this, in this agreement mm -hmm. and build confidence and, and also feel that a, a larger part of the society actually benefit from it. Even if it doesn't come in, in, just in a quick follow -up. money. Those of you or those here who have uh, direct knowledge of how things happen on the Hill, which many of us uh, folks do not, um, what specific uh, actions can we? So the, question, the question is about what, what specific actions. Well, I think that we've seen just since President Trump came into office that there has been uh, a tremendous uh, resurgence of willingness on the part of ordinary Americans to call their members of Congress on a variety of issues. <laughs> and I think you could probably add the Iran nuclear deal to the long list of things that people are now uh, talking about with uh, members of Congress and, and issues that they think are worth preserving. And I also say the Atlantic Council stands ready uh, to educate members of Congress and their staff about uh, not just the nuclear agreement, but other aspects of uh, uh, Iranian policy, domestic realities, and, and so on. We're committed to explaining the complexity of this society to uh, a broader audience in Washington and outside. With that, I'm afraid um, we've come to the end of this panel. We're going to have a brief coffee break, so go and get a, uh, a coffee or a snack, and then we will come back to hear Senator Chris Murphy uh, give his address. And thank you very much to my panel. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
Please take your seats. Please take your seats. How are you? Good to see you. Great. Please have a seat. Yeah, thanks for having me. Hey, the center doesn't have a lot of time here, so. Okay, welcome everybody and welcome Senator Murphy from Connecticut to come all the way here from Connecticut to come see us. Um, uh, we're honored to have you here. Um, I've known the Senator for probably 11 or 12 years. I knew him when he was a Senate, when he was in the Connecticut State Senate and then when he ran for Congress, we got to know each other and now in the Senate and I want you to know that he, um, he's sort of violating the Senate rules by being a very active junior senator from Connecticut. Uh, he's not uh, laid back. He has a point of view. He's working across the aisle with, Dem with Republicans. Uh, he has famously involved himself in gun control, particularly, uh, and famously also had a filibuster, which he started on his own uh, to get a gun control bill. Um, he's been active in, in many domestic areas. But what's astounded me in my experience with him over the last uh, many years is the degree to which he has become such a knowledgeable person on foreign affairs. He travels, he talks, and he listens. And I've watched him perform among many different audiences. And there are few people in the Senate that I know, and I've met 50 over the last two years over this deal, uh, who have a grasp of this issue to the extent that he does. And you will hear from him today, I'm sure, the grasp he already has of this immigration issue. And he'll probably have something to say about that. But I have a personal pleasure and a great honor to present the junior senator from Connecticut. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, uh, Ambassador uh, Lures. And let me just return the, uh, the, the compliment and the admiration. Um, uh, both Bill and uh, his uh, brilliant wife, Wendy, have been just great friends uh, of, of mine. Um, counsel to me. I, I listen. I was, um, you know, the chair of the public health committee in the state legislature. I don't have any family background in either politics or international affairs, and so my learning curve as a freshman congressman, and even more so as a new member of the foreign relations committee, was and to a certain extent is still very steep. And um, Bill is one of the people that I've come to rely on for for good advice and. Uh, as well as friendship, and you know, I still remember uh, sitting in my office with with Bill and, and Tom Pickering when uh, they had this germination of an idea that no one else was willing to talk about. This idea that you could uh, have a conversation with the Iranian government that could end up making this world a uh, safer place. It was an off limits topic 
um, to Congress at the time. You almost felt like you, you know, couldn't publicize the meetings you were having with this, um, with 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 these rebels in the Iran project. And yet, today we are in a world that is safer because of the work that Bill and so many others did. Thank you to all the partners who uh, made this uh, possible, uh, to the Atlantic Council especially. Um, uh, you've been great, uh, great friends too. Um, so I'd love to leave as much time for, for questions as possible to the extent that I'm the you know, member of the political branch that's here today. I'm sure folks have questions uh, about what's going on. Um, I have them as well. Uh, and um, you know, I think one of the things that we know um, is that President Trump is doing everything he said he was going to do on the campaign trail. Uh, and that was one of the big open questions that um, optimists, many of them Democrats, many of them Trump voters, convinced themselves would not work out the way that it has. A lot of people said uh, that this was all campaign rhetoric, that he doesn't really mean it, he doesn't believe it in his heart, and you will see a pivot occur once he becomes president. And it was reinforced by the fact that when his nominees for defense and secretary of state uh, for homeland security came and testified before the relevant committees. They didn't seem too shy to directly contradict some of the policies that President-elect Trump, candidate Trump, said that he would bring to the Oval Office. And so again, you could stand back and tell yourself, okay, this isn't really going to happen. This is going to be different than what he said. And yet, um, on policy after policy in the first 10 days, it's pretty clear that he meant everything that he said. And I'll talk a little bit uh, later at the end of my remarks about uh, the Muslim ban, the executive order, but that's a perfect example of campaign rhetoric that has now turned into policy. So for everybody that thinks that he is not going to rip up the JCPOA, remember how this administration has played out thus far. Remember that up until, um, that, that through the first 10 days, um, he has done everything that he promised he would do. Um, and that inside information that we all thought that we had, that he wouldn't put into place the ban on Muslims, that he wouldn't do this or that, has not been reality. Um, so I, I think we have to start from a defensive posture here. Uh, and we have to continue to remind uh, our colleagues, Republicans and Democrats, that all of the Armageddon predictions that were made about the Iran nuclear deal have simply not come true. That Iran, with minor exceptions, has complied with all of the expectations and requirements of them. They've concreted the Iraq plutonium reactor. They've uh, gotten rid of 97% of their stockpiles. They have not contested the inspection regime. They have not and they, and they have done all that while not realizing the economic benefit that Rouhani and, uh, and Zarif and others promised the country. It's important to remember that because of the imposition of the existing set of sanctions that didn't go away, because of you know, the understandable general reluctance of commercial interests uh, to do business with uh, Iran, um, this bounty, that many of those in favor of the deal promise has not 
come true. And yet despite that, um, uh, despite the fodder that had been handed to hardliners, the um, regime has by and large, with almost no exception, stuck to their requirements uh, under the agreement. And so we need to continue to come back uh, over and over again and tell this story and, and, and talk about how you know, a variety of opponents of this deal are now begging the administration, um, including sort of the mainstream Israeli defense establishment to um, hold on to it and to continue uh, to uh, enforce it. Um, but I also think we need to be cognizant of what's happening in Iran today. And you've already talked about this, I'm sure. I'm sorry I missed the first panel and we'll talk about it. Um, the hardliners see an opportunity. They see an opportunity to force Donald Trump to unwind this deal himself. They see an opportunity to have the failure of the deal be on America's hands. Now, we all knew that that was the game that they were going to play from the start, but they now have a new opportunity, a, a reckless, unplanned, unstrategic American administration who might fall uh, for a tactic run by the hardliners, forcing uh, the international community to blame the United States, not Iran, for this deal being scuttled. It's why many of us have uh, urged a cautious approach, even under the Obama administration, to a conversation about new sanctions against the Iran regime. Um, now, let me be clear. Um, I supported the nuclear agreement. I think I was one of the first to announce uh, the support in the Senate. Um, specifically because I don't believe that that agreement um, disallows Congress from passing new sanctions on non, just to sanction non-nuclear uh, behavior. Uh, and I certainly would count these ballistic missile tests, reports as you've been sitting here of potentially another uh, ballistic missile test. I certainly think that those uh, actions warrant a discussion about sanctions in the United States uh, Senate. I think that the actions that the Iranians have taken uh, to allow for the slaughter of civilians inside Syria warrant a conversation about sanctions. Um, but it should be a careful conversation that acknowledges uh, the potential reciprocal actions taken by Tehran. Um, and I think we uh, sort of need to step back and look at this ban on immigration um, in the context of the same conversation. This is seen by the Iranian regime as a new set of sanctions. Um, now, that's not the right way to look at this. This isn't in r response to anything they did on, with respect to the nuclear agreement. Um, but uh, it, it clearly empowers the hardliners. I mean, when the relative moderates, and of course moderate is a truly relative term in Iran, are running around talking about this new opportunity to engage with the West, this, this um, imperative, the, 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 this, this need, this mandate to reestablish Persian greatness by becoming part of the international community again, um, it scuttles uh, that entire argument to now have the Trump administration labeling not the Iranian regime, but the Iranian people as enemies of the United States. Right? When we've engaged in sanctions um, uh, against, uh, against foreign governments, we try to the extent possible to level them first against governments um, and only second against people. And even when they ultimately affect people, economic sanctions are sort of you know, targeting broad commercial interests and the results filter down to affect people. An immigration ban is fundamentally different. 
right? It is not leveled at political leaders. It is not leveled broadly at the economy. It is not leveled at high-ranking commercial interests. It is leveled directly at the people of that country under the assumption that everyone in that country is a threat to the United States. You know, despite all of the terrible stuff that the Iranian regime has done to fund and to sponsor terrorists and terrorist and radical organizations in the Middle East, there is no evidence that the Iranian people pose a security threat to the United States. That's just fundamentally not true. And this ban uh, on immigration from Iran to the United States is a gift to the hardliners at a moment in which we should not be giving them gifts. This is a tenuous moment for, um, uh, for again, the relative moderates inside Iran with the death of Ayatollah Rafsanjani. This is a movement that doesn't need another body blow, and yet they got it. Um, and so if your goal in the end is to make sure that the radicals and the hardliners, those that do regularly profess the death of Israel, who do want to pursue a, a policy of wreaking havoc in the Middle East, who, who wouldn't be afraid of war with the United States, if you pursue, if you believe that we should pursue a policy that doesn't effectuate that end, um, then the decision to hand them a, a victory, a recruitment tool, um, is maybe the dumbest part of this executive order, and that's saying a lot. Um, and so I, I, I think that w politically, as we try to make the case to Republicans about why they should join us in opposing this order, um, we need to do it uh, for national security reasons. And it is all contextual within the discussion over the JCPOA, uh, because every time you empower the hardliners and conservatives inside Iran, you are making it more likely that they are going to set in place a set of events that will ultimately lead to that agreement collapsing and for Iran to get back on a path to a nuclear weapon, which is what many inside want. Uh, and um, I know that it's a bipartisan imperative to stop Iran from getting a nuclear weapon. We, we, I tried to, to tell people during that debate that there are lots of debates in the United States Senate in which we disagree on the end, right? Not just the means um, on, 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 on healthcare. We disagree on the end on, on climate change. We disagree on the end on, on Iran policy. We never disagreed on the end. We didn't want Iran to get a nuclear weapon. We just disagreed on the way to get there, whether it was through diplomatic means or through military means. Well, um, now that we know that the diplomatic means is working, I do think there's the opportunity in the context of this executive order to bring Republicans and Democrats together. And it's taking Republicans a little bit longer than we would have hoped. Um, uh, we didn't see a lot of comment on Friday and Saturday, but on Sunday you saw a tumult of Republicans coming out and saying, for national security reasons, um, this is... Um, uh, an ill-thought-out idea. And I do think, while they might not have listed the nuclear agreement in their statement, you have to view it uh, in that context, because even those that voted against it uh, are now um, either quietly or publicly calling on the administration uh, to uphold it uh, and to focus on enforcement rather than abandonment. Um, I've said to a lot of people that um, 
you know, this feel, it, it, it feels like I have a totally different job today than I did for the first four years in the United States Senate, right? Um, it, it, you know, I, I think we're all sort of rethinking how we order our days, what we spend our time on, trying to figure out anew what matters, what doesn't, what the rules are, what the rules uh, aren't. Um, but what I do know uh, is um, that the work that you have done, the people in this room, uh, the pioneers uh, behind the Iran project, um, it, it, without it, we would not be at the point we are today. Um, and without your continued engagement, I know he will do what he said he will do. Uh, and so the fact that this room is filled and that there are lots of others uh, who care about uh, remaining um, loyal to this agreement and to the historic benefit to national security that it has, um, that it has caused, um, it makes me a little bit more confident that despite an incredibly tumultuous uh, time that we'll be able uh, to hold the line. So um, uh, to Bill and to, and to Barbara and everyone else, to all the ambassadors here that are present, thank you very much for having me. I look forward to your questions. So I think I'm just gonna sit here and do questions. So yes, go ahead, yeah. Lead away, yeah. Thanks, uh, Barbara Slavin. Um, very basic question, is there anything that Congress could do or that you could imagine it doing uh, on the visa and immigration ban at this point or do you think it's just going to work its way through the courts? Um, so I'm uh, introducing legislation later today uh, that will um, forestall implementation of the executive order, uh, essentially by defunding, and I'll introduce a, a bill later today that will um, cut off all funds for the implementation of the order. Uh, Senator Feinstein will also be introducing legislation later today that will um, uh, rescind the order through a different means. Um, but by the end of today, there will be legislation that Republicans can look at and potentially sign on to that will stop this order from going uh, into effect. Um, and we are talking as we speak with Republican Senate offices about their willingness to join us uh, on this measure or potentially a, a future measure. Um, I'd be really surprised if there are 60 votes in the Senate for um, a piece of legislation that um, rescinds the order, though not shocked. I would be more than surprised if there are the votes or even the willingness to call a piece of legislation like that in the House of Representatives. Um, and as I was describing this um, bill that I was working on to my eight-year-old on Sunday, he, 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 he said, yeah, but, but dad, but, the, but this is my eight-year-old, but dad, the, but, but, but doesn't the president have to sign it? <laughs> and I said, well, yeah, that's true, that's true. Um, <laughs> Uh, so the courts remain our, our, our better remedy here, and, 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 you're, and, and you'll hear a lot about the, the legal argument. It seems pretty clear to me that on immigrant categories, um, the 1965 law is dispositive. You can't discriminate based on religion or national origin. Um, a little bit less clear as to how that um, prohibition against discrimination applies to refugees, um, but clearly there's a prohibition on, um, on, on, on non-refugee uh, immigrants to this country. Um, so I, I think the pathway is much more likely to go through the court system. And I think if I can get to a sort of deeper political level here, um, you know, the reason, as I understand or as I read it, that Republicans are unwilling to join us um, is not because they disagree. Um, with the position we're taking, not because they agree with the ban, um, but because, uh, you know, I guess they just have more important irons in the fire right now as far as they're concerned, that they want to get through 
these budget reconciliations, um, the, the Affordable Care Act repeal and the trickle-down tax cut uh, before they start you know, creating lines of cleavage with him on other issues. So they don't want to lose his support for their economic agenda and their healthcare repeal agenda. And so they're trying to sort of stay close to him right now. And listen, I think this has um, catastrophic implica implications for the country. I think we're shrinking in the world's eyes every single day. But that's my read of why you haven't seen more bipartisan work on this issue since Friday. Just been informed I'm supposed to, to call on people, so let me call on people. Um, maybe back here. Wait for the microphone and ask a question. Thank you. Shala Sadiqi, Voice of America, Persian TV, sir. Um, Mark Dobovitz, uh, executive director of FTD, today mentioned about uh, upcoming sanctions in the Congress uh, in regards to Iran's other activities. So. What is your forecast on that? Do you have enough votes to object to that in the Senate and in the Congress? Uh, you know, I think my approach will be um, serious and careful. Uh, as I said, um, you know, in my opening remarks, uh, I think Iran has conducted itself in a way, especially with regard to their activity in Syria and their continued violation of UN resolutions on ballistic missile tests to warrant a conversation about sanctions. Um, I think the question is um, whether we can right-size uh, that conversation and that policy. Uh, there is clearly appetite amongst Republicans to rush headlong into uh, a new sanctions bill. Um, many of them are doing that because they seek to um, unwind the Iran nuclear agreement. Um, uh, others are interested in it not because they want to kill the deal, but because they actually believe in additional sanctions. I, you know, I, 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 I think it's a serious conversation that we have to have, and I don't think I can tell you whether there are the votes there to pass it or to defeat it unless we know what we're, you know, what, what, what we're talking about. I think it's a, it's, a, it's a very delicate conversation. Uh, Senator, I'm Harlan Ullman from the Atlantic Council. Uh, assuming you are prescient and President Trump does abrogate or somehow avoid and neutralize the JCPO, could you comment and speculate on some of the consequences here, what we might do in the region and elsewhere as to how you could see this unwinding more than just the treaty? If it unwinds, you're saying? Yeah, sure. Well, if, 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 if Trump abrogates the treaty yeah. and the other partners do not, then how do you see the how do you see the consequences and, and what is your response to that or what do you think can happen on the hill? Yeah, well, I mean, it's if 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 we were to abrogate the treaty and 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 I, and I by extrapolation then reimpose sanctions, um, even if the Europeans continued to abide by the treaty, I can't understand how the hardliners wouldn't prevail inside Iran and restart in some way, shape, or form their previous nuclear program. Now, maybe they don't rush to a, a weapon, um, but they certainly put themselves in a position similar to what existed prior to the agreement, where breakout you know, is months rather than years. Um, and 
you know, that would scare the hell out of me, given the way this administration has conducted itself in the first 10 days, to think that Iran could get to a weapon within a handful of months um, if our foreign policy melted down. Um, you know, boy, that's a, that's a truly scary proposition. Um, and I, listen, we're gonna, st we don't know yet what this administration's appetite is for military action. We get, we literally get two diametrically opposed views on alternating days, right? We hear sort of Trump, you know, attack Lindsey Graham and John McCain for wanting to start World War III, and yet he, you know, has already started to dramatically ramp up military activities um, inside the Middle East, witness, um, you know, first American being killed um, inside Yemen uh, this, uh, this weekend. Uh, and certainly some of his nominees, um, you know, come from a fairly traditional neoconservative knock them in the teeth school of, of, of international thought. So it's just really unclear that if we ever got to a position where we felt like the Iranians were close to breakout, you have some people in that administration who I'm convinced would recommend military action, but then you have another sort of school of rhetoric from Trump himself that, you know, suggests Otherwise, I mean, it's you know it's real real hard to tell how it would play out. Hello, my name is Andrew Hanna. I'm a reporter with Politico. Uh, during a conversation between German Chancellor Angela Merkel and Trump on Saturday, President Trump on Saturday, she reportedly reminded him of the United States treaty obligations under the Geneva Refugee Convention, which requires signatories to the treaty to, to, to take in war refugees on humanitarian grounds. My question to you is, do you think President Trump's executive order is in violation of international law? Well, I guess I'm, I'm so focused on US law um, now that I, I can't give you an opinion on international law. You know, we first start with our own law and then we move to international law. I'm convinced this order is in violation of, um, of US law. And I guess I, I won't profess to have an opinion on international uh, law. Uh, Don Lamb, University of Chicago. And I wanted to ask uh, you, uh, Senator, whether uh, Russia and Putin uh, may have a positive role, believe it or not, to play in persuading uh, this administration to keep the JCPOA in place. Yeah, boy, it's hard to, it's hard to think of Russia having a positive role in this administration, but, um, but I will, no, I will submit that they were straight players, you know, for most of the way on this negotiation from every readout of those in the, in the room. Uh, and, um, you know, given the, the muck and the mire that is Russia's involvement in the Middle East today, they likely don't have reason to, you know, try to have things get even messier. Uh, through a nuclear-armed Iran or a sort of addenda military confrontation between the U.S. and Iran over a potential nuclear Iran. So, yeah, you can certainly envision um, the Russians playing, um, you're playing a role here to convince Trump to stick to the, uh, stick to the deal. Uh, but, you know, just remember, everything that we assumed about the U.S.-Russia relationship is up for grabs right now. And so, you know, we, you know, over the last four years at least, knew what we could work with them on, and we had 
been successful at times in compartmentalizing that, right? We could compartmentalize uh, you know, questions uh, about Iran. We could compartmentalize to an extent questions about counterterrorism. And, and, and that wasn't affected by the utter dysfunctionality of our relationship on other issues. I just don't think you can assume that that continues um, because there are going to be some parts of the relationship that might become more functional if we, for instance, um, drop sanctions. Um, and there are other parts of the relationship that might become much more dysfunctional, like the potential crisis in, uh, um, unfolding in the Balkans uh, today. Uh, and all of that may cause these relationships like that over the JCPOA to get more topsy-turvy. Senator, thank you for coming. Uh, I just had a quick question. Uh, you, you said you're going to introduce legislation, which probably is not going to be signed by the president. What do you think other people could do? I mean, people start, started donating to ACLU uh, to help them, you know, whatever they do. Uh, what could other people do uh, in terms of fighting the executive order? Thank you. Yeah. Well, listen, I, you know, I think, and this is a, this is a, a broader statement, but you know, I think one of the lessons of the last 10 days, and I don't want to get too political here, but you know, is that political action matters. Um, I don't think it's coincidental that Republicans came out in opposition or in critique of the ban only after there was a massive public uproar to it, not just on the coasts, um, but you know, in Alabama, right? There were 3,000 people who came out in Alabama to protest uh, this action over the weekend. And so I do think that engaging in, in, in peaceful dissent uh, is a means to push, especially in this issue, to push Republicans who in their gut and in their head know what's right and know what's wrong for political reasons they've chosen not to verbalize it. I, I think uh, action um, in the way that we've seen thus far you know, it is effective here. There are other places where it may not be effective. It might not be effective on the White House. In fact, it seems to have had the opposite effect um, since, uh, since Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. But certainly on Congress, it has, uh, it has an effect. <laughs> My name is Dick Arndt, former president of the Fulbright Alumni Association. And down here is uh, Mr. Ricks, who's the president of the Peace Corps veterans of Iran. So between us, we carry a certain amount of soft power weight, you might say. Uh, the question arose in the last, uh, in the last session. It precisely was asked before. What can we do other than reach out to Congress? Are there other means of support in this country for the education of both ends of the political spectrum, the both ends of in Iran and in the United States, on the question of the JCPOA? Well. We need to build a massive political movement uh, around selling soft power. Um, and that sounds like an oxymoron, like how do you build a political movement around selling soft power, right? I mean, it's, it's, uh, it, it is never historically sold that well, and that's why we have hard power, because it sells a lot more easily, um, you, you know, connects with people's gut much better than soft power does. But you know, we, we didn't necessarily have to do that for the last eight years. We didn't get a lot of soft power in the eight years, but we had a president who at least talked a lot about it, even if he didn't submit budgets that you know, actually backed up that talk 
with appropriations. We now have to do that. Uh, we need to explain to people, you know, think about Russia. We need to explain to people about how Russia exerts influence in the world. Yes, it has a much more modern military than it did 10 years ago, but it's not really asserting its power militarily. It's asserting its power asymmetrically through information warfare, through good old-fashioned bribery and intimidation, through energy bullying. And we have no ability to meet those, um, uh, those strengths with commensurate strengths and tools here in this country. Uh, and, and, and it comes back to this question of supporting the Iran nuclear agreement, right? The Iran nuclear agreement was made real because of the work of diplomats, right? And yet diplomacy is woefully under-resourced all around the world. We have more members of military bands today than we do diplomats in the State Department. Um, and so if you want to learn the lessons of the JCPOA, if you want to respond to the new threats that are presented to the United States, we have to build um, a grassroots movement in which people and existing political groups um, that already have power um, decide to care about or add to their advocacy, um, advocacy for smart power. Many of you have worked with me um, on a, a, a new budget for international affairs that dramatically pluses up um, support for non-military tools that the president has. I'll be, uh, it's, it's in its final stages. I'll be unveiling that, um, that new budget, that new way of funding international affairs uh, very shortly. Uh, and I hope that that document um, is gonna be part of that exercise. Uh, good afternoon, I'm Faye Mokhtadar. Uh, I'm a member of Atlantic Council. Uh, Senator Murphy, thank you very much for being here. Thank you, Barbara, and thank you, Atlantic Council, for organizing such an amazing event. Uh, my question to you as uh, uh, some of the sound-minded people around our current president, like General Mathis, had uh, um, numerous times uh, uh, basically emphasis on the fact that this agreement is an agreement that is signed by the United States of America. So I think he wanted to make sure that uh, the United States has a, uh, on the international uh, stage, uh, keeps his promises. Otherwise, nobody else in the world would ever sign any agreement with the United States. So what do you think? Thank you. Well, I, I, you know, I think it's, um, I think we don't know yet what influence Mattis is going to have in this administration. He clearly had no influence on the executive order signed Friday. Um, but, you know, at least as Trump professes, he has influences on other questions like the, uh, like the administration's position on torture. Um, he makes a strong case, right? We all believe it. We all know why that's true. Um, but, you know, step back and start to consider what this administration's motives are. Um, think about the fact that right now, it looks as if the most powerful person in the administration has professed a desire to completely destroy national and international institutions. Right? This is what Steve Bannon has said. Um, and so if, if, your, if your agenda is to destroy institutions, then stare decisis, right? consistency of opinion and policy, not really something that you care about when you wake up every morning. Um, so I think we're, you know, we're just learning about what it is that drives this administration. And it may not be the things that drove every other administration, right? It, 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 it may be that they are interested in inconsistency rather than consistency. Um, and that's something that would be very difficult for everybody to get used to and very, very dangerous in my opinion. Yeah, one more, yeah, we can do one. Yeah. 
Edward Levine, Center for Arms Control and Nonproliferation. If we look at coming legislative fights over non-nuclear sanctions on Iran, even though the bills will not go to the Foreign Relations Committee, it is likely that the Foreign Relations Committee will be looked to as one of the centers of expertise. And I wonder how the Democrats on the Foreign Relations Committee are going to react to these proposals, given that some of the senior Democrats on the committee were not known for their love of the JCPOA. Yeah. Oh, I wonder too. Um, <laughs> um, I, 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 listen, I think it'll, it'll, it'll in part depend on the intent of the proposals. Again, I, I can't speak for every, you know, every Democrat, never mind every Republican. Um, but I do think that there's a consensus, even amongst those who voted against the agreement, that the best course of action today uh, is to enforce it and to keep it in place. And I think I can actually speak for, I think, I think Ranking Member Cardin has you know, publicly stated that he thinks uh, that our policy today should be to enforce the agreement rather than uh, to abandon it. And I also think he's voted that way. So, um, so I think my, my, my guess would be that Democrats who either voted against it or were very openly critical of it will try to divine the motivation behind the sanctions bills that are being presented and will try to game out what the result of those sanctions bills will be um, because I think you do have a lot of folks on both sides of the aisle who don't want this thing to ultimately fall, uh, fall apart. You know, but again, I come back to what I said at the beginning. I, I do think it's important to remember that even for those of us who are the most ardent supporters of that piece of legislation, we made it clear that we were not forestalling our ability to vote for sanctions later on. And, and why, did we, why did we say that? In part because we wanted to convince our colleagues that the JCPOA was not a referendum on all of Iran's activity, right? The, the, the biggest sticking point in that debate, the reason that it might not have passed was because the opponents wanted to say that you shouldn't sign any agreement with Iran until we settle all of our issues with them. And we said, no, 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 we need to settle the nuclear issue. Um, while admitting that we leave unsettled issues over human rights, ballistic missile tests, support for terrorism. Well, if, if I want to be consistent in that position, then I have to be open uh, to conversations about new sanctions. And if it is true that they launched another, uh, if they did another ballistic missile test today, well, then, you know, they know exactly what conversation is coming in this Congress, and they shouldn't be surprised by the fact that we're going to open up that debate. Again, I think we have to engage in it very carefully. We have, to, we have to game this out, you know, one or two or three steps uh, ahead of time. Um, but, but I have to be intellectually consistent, and that means um, engaging in that conversation, not prejudging the outcome, but engaging in it. Take one more. One more question. Sure. Uh, sure. Uh, Senator Gugarat's reporter of Argus Media. Uh, do the events of the past weekend change your decision or thinking in terms of Voting to confirm Rex Tillerson. I was. I think I was the the, the first to announce my opposition to Tillerson. So, no, I will not be voting to uh, to uh, to vote for Tillerson based on this weekend's events. Um, yeah. No. I. I. Well. I think I, one of the things it does here is that I, I. The Congress did give both Mattis, and Kelly, 
you know, a little benefit of the doubt based on the fact that in their confirmation hearings, they opposed President Trump's policy on the Muslim ban. And then, you know, maybe it's not their, I don't, I don't know what happened. Reports are that they weren't consulted on this, or maybe Kelly was being consulted as it was being put into place. But, you know, clearly they didn't have any impact on Trump's decision to impose this reckless, uh, harmful, dangerous ban. And so to the extent that nominees are, you know, trying to push their candidacies by telling Democrats that they're going to stand up to President Trump, that has a lot less purchase, should have a lot less import than it did before Friday. Um, because we were told that Madison Kelly would tell the president how dangerous it would be to ban Muslims from entering the United States. Either they lost that case, didn't make it, or were never consulted. Uh, and so I think that just speaking on my behalf, that makes me less willing to support a nominee simply because I think that that nominee is going to be a sane, reasonable voice inside the administration. Uh, that doesn't seem to have been borne out with respect to some people's belief about what the Secretary of Defense and the Secretary of Homeland Security were going to add to this administration. Um, again, uh, I, uh, uh, we're in the middle of this right now, so I gotta head back uh, to re-engage in, in this particular debate. But uh, again, I, this is a tremendously important time for you all to be focusing on this and, and, and to uh, Barbara and Bill and everybody else. Uh, thank you very much for having me, appreciate it. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain seated as the senator exits the room. Thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, we'll be having a brief break now, and our next panel will begin at 2.30. Thank you.
Seen him in a few events lately on transition issues, yeah. and then he hosted something on Afghanistan. Are we, man? Are we ready to go? Okay, everybody ready? Chatham House. Could, could people sit down, please? Hello. Hello, everybody. Can you hear me? <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for staying on after the senator left. Uh, we're very impressed by the fact that you've got such ability to sustain yourselves. Um, this is going to be a very gentle diplomatic panel. Uh, all of us have been career diplomats and don't expect any fire coming out of any of our mouths. Um, but lots of good analysis and maybe even some thinking about policy. Yeah. But I'm most impressed by the fact that these three colleagues have agreed to join today. Uh, I presume most of you know Zal Khalilzad, who, who uh, has been a friend of mine for many years and who um, was ambassador to many places. I think he was the only one ambassador to more places than Tom Pickering. But he, no. He, he was, he <laughs> Nobody's been, he was, he was been to more embassies than Tom. And, and, he, um, um, and he's about as sensible a person on this region as you can get. And not the least reason for that is the fact that he's from that region. And he has a sense of the culture, the, the history, the, and the current politics because of his time there. Uh, and I think I'd like to start with that, and I'll introduce the others when we go to it. Uh, Zal, you didn't hear what was just said by Chris Murphy. Um, he gave his view, basically focused on the Iran question, talking a, a good deal about the immigration issue and the, uh, the executive order of the president. Um, but I'd like this to move beyond, I'd like us to move beyond the the particular um, nuclear agreement to talk about how the nuclear agreement has affected every relationship and how those relationships are evolving. And maybe you could talk a little bit about the northern group of countries, the, the Syria, um, Iraq, Afghanistan, Iran network, and how you see that playing out now in this post-JCPOA era and what you think the president should do about it. Sure. Well, Close first it. of all, uh, are you done? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, thank you very much. Uh, it's an honor to be here. A slight corrective. I, was, I didn't have the honor of being part of the professional foreign service, so, uh, but uh, nevertheless, uh, a, a great honor to be with distinguished colleagues with whom I have worked uh, over many years. Uh, with regard to the impact of the nuclear agreement on uh, regional relations, I don't know whether the uh, uh, nuclear agreement had uh, any direct effect on regional policies uh, or relations between uh, the states of the region, although uh, several more to the south were openly against the agreement, suspicious of the agreement, suspicious of U.S. engagement uh, with Iran. 
But as far as the northern tier countries are concerned, Afghanistan, uh, Iraq, and Syria, the three countries you mentioned, they were all supportive uh, of the agreement. That's sort of one big difference. Uh, uh, because even in my time as ambassador to two of those three countries, uh, uh, Afghanistan and Iraq, both countries uh, were pushing very hard uh, for good relations or normal relations or better relations than existed between the United States and Iran. President Karzai in Afghanistan uh, always uh, tried to uh, uh, offer himself as an intermediary uh, he had uh, good relations with President Khatami. And when I went over to Iraq, uh, the Iraqi Shia in particular uh, thought they were friends of Iran and friends of the United States. And they didn't want to be torn asunder, so to speak, uh, 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 between these two uh, countries that they wanted to have good relations with both, with different degrees. Uh, some more so than others among the political parties. But uh, uh, so therefore, I, I, I think they, these three countries, uh, the leadership of these three countries, uh, the dominant political forces in these countries, not that there weren't other forces operating, favored and endorsed publicly uh, the, the, the nuclear agreement. But as far as whether Iran changed policies towards these three countries, in the aftermath of the nuclear agreement, or whether because of the negotiations uh, between us and Iran and the agreement, uh, uh, whatever you think of the agreement with, uh, on the nuclear agreement, uh, some believe that uh, uh, that would have a positive effect uh, on the regional relations. Uh, uh, and I don't think a case can be made, at least I can't make it, that the uh, agreement had that effect. Uh, uh, Iran continued essentially the, the policies that it had before and during the negotiations, uh, which was in the case of Syria, support uh, the regime. Uh, in the case of uh, Iraq, uh, support the government uh, uh, that was dominated by forces that were quite friendly and sympathetic to Iran. And in Afghanistan, they supported, like we did, the unity government, uh, uh, and also maintained good relations with, uh, uh, with, uh, with uh, those that were closer and had a longer-term relationship with Iran, elements of the Northern Alliance, which uh, during the Taliban period, they sustained. And we took over after the 9-11 uh, attack uh, with Iran in help, I must say, at that time. Uh, now. Some changes in the region have affected Iranian policy. Uh, uh, one, uh, that, that the Shia-Sunni divide has gotten worse uh, over time. Uh, and uh, uh, places like Afghanistan, where uh, they stayed out of the Sunni-Shia divide, Saudi-Iranian divide, are, uh, are, 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 are fearful. And some uh, believe that it's beginning to negatively affect them. Uh, they see more violence against Shia communities, although it has been there. Not to the extent that you see it in some other countries of the region, but uh, they've been worried about that. Uh, in the case of, uh, of course, uh, uh, Iraq, there is no real 
uh, change. I think that the, 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 the rise of ISIS has had an impact in the sense that uh, Iran uh, has used that, uh, uh, the war against ISIS, to further increase and perhaps institutionalize its uh, 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 increased role, particularly uh, in Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, Syria, of course, as I said, and they were pro-supportive uh, of the regime. Uh, in, 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 uh, uh, the threat from ISIS is taken very seriously by Iran. Uh, 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 then the province of Diyala, for example, in Iraq, and because the sh uh, ISIS was getting close to the Iranian border, they have pushed, uh, uh, were very afraid, and now Iranian influence in the, that province is extremely high. It may be that they have some direct presence, some distance into uh, Diyala province of Iraq. They have used uh, the threat of ISIS, which was a real threat, to build uh, support militias. Uh, as, uh, as an alternative uh, to state institutions, security institutions, much more directly linked uh, to Iran, where we uh, uh, were much more influential with the security, state security forces. So, uh, and now uh, a law has been passed. Uh, there are different interpretations of, of that law uh, that institutionalizes the role of militias with regard to the Iraq future and therefore some are worried that this would be another kind of Hezbollah, a, a state within a state, but linked more directly uh, to, uh, to uh, 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 the Iranian regime. And in Afghanistan, uh, the rise of ISIS there, which is not as, as significant at this point as ISIS has been in Syria and in Iraq, uh, this has uh, produced some adjustment in uh, Iranian policy that has been disturbing to the government where they are reaching out to the Taliban and there has been contact. In fact, Mullah Mansour, the leader of the Taliban that we killed in the Pakistani Balochistan that allegedly was on his way back from Iran when, when, when he was killed. And like Russia and maybe some others who see the ISIS threat as the most serious threat, Iran has adjusted to use maybe tied with the Taliban or elements of the Taliban, because the Taliban is really an umbrella organization with various uh, elements in it, to fight uh, and contain uh, 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 ISIS, so the agenda as, as adjusted. I would say f uh, that uh, in the case of, uh, of Syria and Iraq, Iranian role is more significant. Uh, than in the case of Afghanistan. And the settlement, ultimately, of these two countries would require uh, Iranian acquiescence, if not direct support. And that settlement, uh, uh, we can talk about the details of what situ the situation on the ground. Uh, in order for it to work, it has to be obviously more broadly accepted in the region, and obviously now by Russia, and perhaps some ourselves and some others. And I think that the, the, a, a few points, and I'll end with that, uh, I may have taken a lot of time already. One is that uh, the same principles uh, have to apply to both countries uh, in terms of political settlement in the sense that the civil wars of these two countries are interlinked now. And because it has become in part sectarian, at, uh, in part ethnic, and because uh, 
smaller identities such as ethnicity, sectarian identity have become very politicized. How do you accommodate uh, this in a context where there is also regional polarization? And, 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 and so if a majority community uh, is, uh, 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 it's a, the principle could be is as dominant power, uh, in the case of Iraq, the constitution gave power to the prime minister through parliament. Uh, it's a parliamentary system. And the Shia uh, voted for their identity during the early period. The hope is that over time they will become issue-oriented. But in the initial phase, it was identity politics. The prime minister has been a Shia since the overthrow of Saddam. And that's the most powerful position, is the commander-in-chief of the army and what have you. But then, how do you accommodate the other communities where identity is also politicized, issue orientation is there, but not as strong as identity politics, uh, is uh, uh, to have uh, federalism or confederal arrangements. Uh, uh, and the courts pushed for that uh, in the case of Iraq and got it. And uh, in the case of Sunnis, they were initially opposed, and now there is a a lot of support in the Sunni Arab community, which felt the country belonged to them, and they were in favor of a very strong center. That they thought they would dominate or dominate again. They, uh, they initially were very much against uh, federalism. But now uh, that has changed. And, and I think that for the Turks and, and, and for uh, Saudis and others to accept a settlement in Syria, it must reflect a similar uh, a proposition uh, where the Sunnis are the majority. And the, I think the challenge for diplomats, uh, Russian, American, whomever wants to play a positive role is, how do you uh, arrange that where you could have, uh, uh, um, given the power balance in which the Sunnis are not in a strong position, that is in part the trick, uh, that you come have an arrangement where you have a weak presidency, perhaps potentially, a stronger parliamentary prime minister, autonomy for the various communities who are fearful of each other at this point because of nostalgia in part, revenge in part, that you can have an arrangement with international support where Alawites can run their own affairs, maybe some of the Sunnis and Kurds similarly. And I think there are lessons to be learned from the Iraqi experience. That, that does not mean, as the case of Iraq demonstrates, that this is going to be easy, quick, and you will get a peaceful outcome right away. You know, these processes take many generations uh, to, to uh, work themselves out. Uh, the sense of time is different. Uh, the, the hold of history is much stronger. Uh, nostalgia is powerful. Revenge is very powerful. Uh, local interferences of regional players are there. Uh, they have their own agendas, not the same necessarily of the local players. But I think uh, that, that seems like a, like a sensible uh, kind of objective for us to also embrace for the new administration. And maybe we can, to get working with others, uh, we can, we can, we can uh, make progress. But uh, Iran's role will be significant in both cases and cannot be ignored. Good. Um, I want you to know that when he was at the UN, <coughs> we were giving a going away party for um, Javad Zarif, who was then ambassador to the UN, and he was leaving, and, and Zal was then the US ambassador. 
And we were giving a going away party. We were having, having Kissinger for the event. And um, I was walking on the street and I said to Zal, I saw him. And I said, would you come to, to dinner with Henry and, and uh, with Javad Zarif, of course, whom he'd known during the early years. And he came representing the Bush administration. Nobody ever said anything until now that it actually happened. Um, Thank you for that. Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, Marcel, thank you for coming. We have, uh, we have not known each other before. Uh, she's head of the Arab Gulf Institute, uh, States Gulf Institute. And I, I, um, I know your career. And by the way, you were an honorary. I was honored very much so. It was a great honor. Yes, indeed. Um, And I know you know that region very well. And here we are. The the answer to the question, what effect (coughs) did this agreement have, which is the theme around which the symposium is organized, (coughs) seems to me uh, that it did um, intensify the concern in the Gulf states about what the relationship would be with Iran. And it coincided with a a slipping of the relationship, in any case, because of oil and so many other things. But how do you uh, evaluate uh, where we are with the Gulf states, Uh, um, where uh, the United States might position its its policies, and uh, the degree to which the Gulf states might play a constructive role in the Syria-Iraq set of issues? Well, thank you very much for the invitation, first of all. And thanks to Barbara and the Atlantic Council for allowing me to join this distinguished panel. Zal and I, I was in Abu Dhabi. He was in Kabul. And Dan was my boss in Cairo. So I'm in great company here. At the Arab Gulf States Institute, all we think about is the impact of uh, all the regional conflicts on the the countries of the GCC. So as you can imagine, obviously, Iran is very much central to that conversation. And anything we do, whether we're looking at Syria or Iraq or uh, the sectarian issues or the uh, Saudi-Iranian political confrontation and competition in the region, which has been going on for a very long time. So the impact on the agreement, obviously, the, uh, most of the Arab Gulf states, and all of you know, they don't all hold to the same line. There are many differences in how they perceive their role in the region. Oman, for example, is, has a very different perspective on Iran than the other uh, GCC countries. But for the most part, obviously, during the interim agreement and the final negotiations, they, they pushed back on the agreement because they felt it was extremely narrow uh, just looking at the no- nuclear uh, p- portion, and ignored the parts of the, of, the, of the region that they felt very serious and very concerned about, obviously the role that Iran plays in the region. Um, I think now with the agreement well behind us, I have not heard any um, person in, in a position of influence or authority in any of the GCC countries who would be advocating for the abrogation of the treaty, uh, of the agreement, excuse me. Uh, I think all of them would see that as a huge mistake, and it would, in their view, uh, certainly strengthen the hardliners in Iran and not uh, the people that we hope will be more influential in years to come. That said, I think the agreement for, uh, for the region, uh, in many ways, has empowered Iran further. I don't think any of us 
would disagree with that when we see Iran's growing role in Syria, uh, its relationship with uh, Russia, and working together hand in hand with Hezbollah. Uh, certainly the message to the region is that uh, you can't solve Syria without us. Uh, you can't solve Iraq without us. And now Yemen, you can't solve without us. So um, the impact of the agreement for the Arab Gulf states, it certainly took away or delayed uh, Iran as a nuclear power, but in every other way, it took it out of the box. And it's become a you know, much more influential, much more uh, of a player that they have to contend with. So um, in terms of where we are today, I think, uh, I think this situation in Syria and probably the incoming uh, of the Trump administration are probably playing a constructive role in that the region is waking up for different reasons and thinking about why they have to talk. I think from the, the Arab side and the Saudi side in particular, the fall of Aleppo was huge. Uh, I think it's a wake-up call. You're not going to solve Syria without uh, uh, talking to Iran. Uh, on the other hand, I think the Iranians are concerned. Am I understanding what you said? You said the Saudis are now realizing after the fall of Aleppo that they can't move forward without talking to Iran? I think they see, they see the importance of at least responding to many of the, the comments out of Iran about reaching out and so on. The fact that the Kuwaiti foreign minister went supposedly with a GCC letter uh, to Iran. I think, I think both sides have reasons to move towards a more conciliatory uh, rapprochement attitude. On the Iranian side, I think they feel that uh, they're very concerned about the Trump uh, administration. Uh, I think they heard Mattis very clearly. Yes, the, the, we're, we're not sure how much influence Mattis will have, but certainly he said a lot of things that the Arabs want to hear about uh, Iran's rule be, uh, role in the region being extremely troubling and a, th a greater threat than, than anything else in the region. So I think Iran has reasons to, to think in a more conciliatory uh, way, and so do the Arabs. So, We've seen a few other signs I can point to very quickly. One, the OPEC oil uh, production agreement was uh, a small sign. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the fact that uh, Morocco uh, has reestablished full diplomatic relations with Iran. Certainly, I don't think the Moroccans would have done that without a green light from the UAE and Saudi Arabia. So that's kind of another sign that uh, things are, are softening a little bit. Um, I think, honestly, uh, the, the next, I mean, really, this first year of the Trump administration will give us more signs as to whether there's hope for a more, um, at least a talking relationship rather than the one we're seeing in the region right now, where um, it's, it's the worst it's ever been, in my view, in terms of that. How would you think the Saudis, what kind of role do you see them playing for themselves, particularly in Syria? What might be their role? Well, I mean, the, the Saudis and the Qataris, uh, less so the Emiratis and, uh, and Kuwait, the Saudis and the Qataris have been so insistent on the removal of Bashar al-Assad. And I think given the Russian involvement in Syria and, and uh, obviously close coordination with Iran and the fall of Aleppo, that seems to be farther away. That's not going to happen, and I think that's obvious to the Saudis. It may be something they, they want to see as a potential uh, you know, political agreement that would eventually lead to a change of, of, uh, of Bashar al-Assad. But for now, 
I think the, the Saudis are, are realizing that their primary goal in Syria is not going to be realized right away, and that's why I think the events in Syria are a bit of a motivation, if you will, hmm. to, to be more conciliatory towards Iran. Well, I hope after you get through with your original presentations, we, we will talk a little bit about this Russian plan that has just been announced, yeah. which involves a new constitution drafted by the Russians and the Iranians and the, and the, and the Turks with a footnote on the Kurds. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, Dan um, is probably the most uh, even-handed, knowledgeable, and professional uh, policy person on, on Israel, Israel-Palestine, Egypt, and that network, which is really different than what we've been talking about. And uh, he was ambassador to both Israel and Egypt, uh, teaches at Princeton, uh, writes books about these things, so give us a short version of what your new book will be on this. <laughs> a short version of Netanyahu, let's see. <laughs> First of all, uh, I join everyone in, in really thanking and congratulating both you, Bill, and the Iran Project, and you, Barbara, and Atlanta Council for the extraordinary work that you did to help make this happen. Uh, so uh, really, uh, yeah. hats off to you. Um, one you, were, you were in the middle of our whole effort. You never, a little you were bit, part of it. Yeah. A little bit. Um, one comment first, if I might, on something Marcel just said. I hope she's right that uh, the Saudi attitude towards um, dealing with Iran on this issue is softening. I'm not sure. Uh, I spent the last three and a half years chairing the U.S. side of a track two with Russia on Syria where we had much more agreement between the United States and Russia than we could get on the idea of bringing Iran and Saudi Arabia into that dialogue. Mm -hmm. um, so if there is some softening, if we're seeing some signs, that would be most, uh, most welcome. <laughs> Look, I, I don't have to remind uh, everyone here that uh, probably the most implacable foe of the uh, JCPOA uh, was the Israeli government. Um, and specifically Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, and uh, his opposition uh, remains as firm today as it, as it was uh, before the accord uh, came into being. Um, it's also important to note, though, that if you strip away uh, the Israeli tactics that uh, some of us found a bit unusual, uh, <laughs> going behind the president's back to Congress and so forth, and if you strip away some of the language that was used that in, in our parlance we would say was just plain nasty, uh, the fact of the matter is that Israel has unique security concerns uh, and all of them have an Iranian component in them. Uh, in the big picture, it's the idea that Iran uh, might in fact uh, make a political decision to acquire uh, nuclear weapons uh, capability, uh, might actually develop um, a ballistic missile uh, capability that is uh, precise. And you have had, not in the current government, but you have had in previous Iranian governments, people who are willing to speak openly about wiping the state of Israel off the map, um, which in the particular context of Israel evokes um, not just a thought but a historical reality 
that uh, was faced by the Jewish people 70 years ago. Um, that's in the large picture. But as you look around at Israel's other security concerns, the Iranians pop up almost everywhere. Um, and I'm thinking most particularly in Syria, uh, the Iranian role, uh, not just in propping up Bashar al-Assad, but in uh, sending Iranian forces, uh, IRGC and others, uh, to fight and to die and to uh, displace uh, Sunni Syrians in order to create a kind of Iranian buffer around Damascus. Um, you have an Iranian role in uh, keeping Hezbollah well armed. And uh, perhaps uh, the Israelis would fear in helping Hezbollah create a second front, not just along Israel's northern border, but along the Golan Heights line. And so as you, as you look at this regional uh, context, uh, security context, uh, Iran is not a, uh, a single problem. It is a multiple complex problem that Israeli decision makers face. And uh, in some ways, it does account for the very often uh, hyperbolic uh, way in which Israel talks about Iran uh, and the concerns that uh, uh, at least the Israeli government expresses. That said, as we saw during the JCPOA negotiations themselves, and we've seen now even more publicly, there has been and remains a split between what I call the political decision makers in Israel and a large part of the security establishment. It was mentioned a little bit earlier in the first panel. Uh, I don't want to make it a binary because uh, obviously there are large parts of the security establishment whose job it is to protect the state of Israel who are very worried about Iran. But there's also a large part of that establishment, including former officials who are prepared to speak publicly, who make the argument that we may not have wanted the way the, C the JCPOA came out. We would have wanted a tougher agreement or whatever, but it's not bad. And as we heard in the earlier panel, it's kind of working with all of its uh, weaknesses and problems. Uh, secondly, um, these folks argue, the way to get the United States to pay more attention to Iranian behavior that's not included in the agreement, which is everything else, uh, support for terrorism, what it's doing in uh, destabilizing or uh, undermining other governments and so forth, human rights, is not to fight the United States government, as uh, happened in the Obama administration, but to try to work with the United States government. Now, we're going to have a way of testing this proposition in a few weeks, because the Prime Minister of Israel is going to be an early visitor uh, to uh, Washington. We don't know much of what has happened in the phone calls that have taken place. But the, the prospect is, I would think, fairly high the Prime Minister will come in with a very ambitious agenda, both on Iran, but also on issues closer to home, uh, which are not part of today's agenda. But just to mention them, uh, this whole complex of issues of whether the United States will uh, move its embassy to Jerusalem, recognize something in Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, uh, our attitude towards Israeli settlements. You recall last week, Israel made some announcements. And the White House spokesman was quiet, didn't really condemn or comment on it. Uh, or even uh, the question of potentially uh, Israel's an annexing 
parts of the West Bank. Unlikely that they would seek to annex all of the West Bank, but there's been talk of annexing some of the big blocks or to start with some areas in Area C. Uh, and we're going to be faced in the next few days with the fourth issue in this other complex, which is how the United States reacts to what looks like Israeli legislation that would retroactively legalize settlement outposts that are not only illegal under international law, but are illegal up until now under Israeli law. And they're about to be magically, you know, the dust will be thrown on them and they'll become legal. Um, so Netanyahu's gonna have that uh, on his mind. Um, already the Israeli government on these issues seems to be dipping its toe in the water. Uh, it's quote unquote gotten away with the announcement of more settlement activity, no reaction, that I saw today on uh, Netanyahu's announcement that he's going to move forward with the uh, retroactive legalization bill. So it seems that they can take these, these uh, baby steps towards uh, what they really would like is American support for increasing control over uh, the West Bank, legal control. There's the second big issue, which is Iran. And I, I don't think, frankly, that Netanyahu is going to walk into Washington and ask for abrogation of the accord, uh, but rather to do the kinds of things that the Israelis have talked about, um, even those that have not particularly liked the accord, as well as those who have, they've talked about now for a few years uh, during repeated visits that I've made and discussions with them. Number one is, um, what is it that the United States will do when there is a major breach of the agreement? Israel wants to know and would like to have some kind of a an assurance that the United States will react uh, not with just, just with words, but also with actions. If there is a major breach of the agreement, which is clear, uh, uncontestable in terms of the P5 plus one, but is not remedied by uh, the Iranian authorities. Uh, number two, uh, the Israelis will, Netanyahu will uh, expect some uh, reiteration of the idea that a military force uh, has not been taken off the table. The two, number one and number two are connected, but uh, they're also separable. Uh, you recall that Netanyahu had trouble within his own government in gaining support for the idea of military action, clearly had trouble gaining support from the United States. He wants to know whether Trump's ready to say the words and um, the impact that that will have on the ears of the Iranians listening to it. Number three, um, there are tangible uh, issues that Netanyahu will uh, hope to get. Uh, for example, the Obama administration negotiated a $38 billion 10-year aid program, um, which some Republicans, even during the Obama administration, argued was uh, insufficient and which had provisions in it that <laughs> Uh, took away some of the benefits that Israel had enjoyed over the years, such as about 26% or 25% of our aid being able to be used in Israel to bolster its uh, uh, defense industries. Uh, so Netanyahu, I, I'm, I would be pretty sure, is going to talk about reopening uh, or opening that 10-year uh, accord and finding ways to uh, improve it from uh, <laughs> from Israel's perspective, uh, so that not only would 
for example, the defense aid come back in, the, the aid for Israeli defense industries come back in, but uh, there would be assurances that uh, additional support for missile defense, Israeli missile defense, would be additive to whatever number is agreed upon over 10 years rather than incorporated in the 38 billion, which is the way it's defined today. So the Israeli uh, uh, attitude, I think, is going to be in a way transactional rather than um, ideological or political. Yes, Netanyahu will say all the things that he has said about how horrible Iran is and how horrible the agreement is, but behind closed doors, uh, he's going to try to make a deal, I believe, with the president and come out uh, probably pretty well satisfied. If I can offer one comment on Egypt, um, is that okay? We were hoping. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, you know, the, the Egyptian attitude towards this um, has always been uh, much more challenging to understand. The Egyptians uh, have had a very long-standing um, uh, distaste, even hatred, of the Iranians for reasons that have to do, uh, number one, in terms of regional um, co uh, competition, but also, uh, and you talk to Egyptians, they remember um, Iran's attitude towards the assassination of their president back in 1981. And I heard consistently, 20 years later, serving in Cairo, you know, we will never truly be friends with the Iranians while a main street in Tehran is named after Khalid Islambouli, who was the assassin of President Sadat. Uh, symbolic, perhaps, but it really cuts uh, deeply into the psychological uh, being of, uh, of many Egyptians, including uh, at, at the top of the, uh, the top echelons. Number two, uh, the Egyptians have been staunch defenders of the Non-Proliferation Treaty. Uh, and in this respect, their target has always been Israel uh, as a non-member of the Non-Proliferation Treaty and as a, an undeclared nuclear uh, power. Uh, and so the Iranian uh, nuclear issue uh, always seemed to the Egyptians to be almost of secondary importance. Iran's far away. Egypt was not going to really be a target of Iranian aggression. Um, but the Egyptians were always, over these past few years, trying to get the world also to focus on the Israeli program, as they've done in each NPT review conference since the mm -hmm. treaty was, was established. Um, so that accounts in part for the fact that uh, Egypt has basically been silent uh, over the agreement, letting uh, the Saudis and the Gulf states take the lead hoping to get some tangible benefits uh, in terms of increased security assistance. Um, and uh, I think this would also account for the fact that President Sisi has been an early, uh, at least public supporter of President Trump. Again, a transactional view on the part of a country that doesn't have an ideological opposition to the Iranian nuclear program, even though it has an ideological view about Iran per se. Good, great. Let me ask one little question of you two. The, um, there's been sort of a subliminal alliance that has evolved between Iran and Saudi Arabia. Iran and Saudi Arabia? Israel. Israel. Saudi I mean, Israel and Saudi Arabia. Right. I'm sorry, against Iran, because right. of Iran. Mm -hmm. um, and um, is, that, is that a reality? In, are they functioning that way? Are they, is that? Well, it, they, look, uh, below the surface, it's, it's even better than subliminal, it's, yeah. uh, it's happening. There's a lot of cooperation underway between Israel and most of the Arab world that used to be off limits. Uh, 
Yeah. Uh, how, how big a factor is Iran opposition, huge. mutual opposition to Iran? Is that a? I tell you, that's huge. True. Uh, uh, I was uh, in Saudi Arabia a few weeks ago, uh, and uh, uh, all the leaders, uh, especially the deputy crown prince, uh, was saying, and with the military people in the room, that they don't regard Israel as a threat, and they have no plans uh, in that regard, uh, and their planning doesn't focus on, on, on Israel, and it is largely because of Iran and the threat that Iran poses. Uh, one effect of perhaps the neglect, some would say, or a bit of disengagement or uh, lack of adequate support to allies by the Obama administration has been that it has affected the regionals maybe coming together more like Israel and some of the Arab states who shared similar threat perception. But how, how would that, that play out? Effect. Let's say he does make the decision to move the American embassy to Jerusalem and the prediction is that violence would break out. Would, uh, would the governments of, of the Arab countries want to repress that or would it be basically coming from ISIS and others? You know, Bill, what's interesting is mm -hmm. um, you, you didn't hear me mention that Netanyahu yeah. was going to bring that up. Right. Um, when he's asked publicly, as he was yesterday, mm -hmm. he will say, of course, we want the American embassy to be in Jerusalem, and members of his cabinet will say so. But um, he will understand, as much as anybody, that the argument that he wants to make to Trump, which is that, in a sense, Israel becomes a pathway to relations with countries that are upset with the United States, like Saudi Arabia, mm -hmm. um, can get undermined by a move of the American like embassy yeah. mm -hmm. to which Saudi Arabia would have to react because right. of the Arab street. They'd have right. no choice. Right. Yeah. And I think uh, Netanyahu understands that very well. Let, let me ask one more question before we go to the audience. Um, uh, there was an agreement, uh, sort of the beginning of an agreement announced yesterday <coughs> that Russia issued uh, after their meetings with Turkey and, and Iran and, and uh, some other some of the opposition forces, not all of them by any means, in Syria, uh, on Syria, which included the draft of a new constitution. And the new constitution would include uh, a great deal of, as, as I'll said, a confederation, a, a great deal of decentralization. And of course, a key issue is that Russia has in there a, a, a sort of semi-autonomous Kurdish uh, element uh, in Syria. Um, do you think that it seems likely to you that uh, Russia, uh, Iran, and Turkey, if they could ever sort some of these things out, could carry forward the UN mandate on trying to find a long-term solution to Syria uh, without us? Well, I, mean, it's I think that's unlikely. Uh, but I don't think we would have a problem with a formula along the lines that uh, you have described, although I haven't read the, uh, the details of it. But the, uh, the key challenge would be whether you can get the Turks to agree uh, the, uh, that uh, autonomous Kurdish region that could be dominated by PYD, which is uh, the dominant party there, mm -hmm. which they regard as tied to PKK. Uh, would be acceptable. Uh, now, uh, you know, the Turks were not that happy with the federalism in Iraq, but 
they accommodated over time. And now relations between the Kurdish region of Iraq, the dominant party, the KDP, and Turkey is quite close. And it's a mutually beneficial relationship. Uh, but uh, it seems to me that PYD's PKK connection makes it a little harder uh, to sell. Uh, but, uh, but there will be huge progress uh, if uh, this, there is this agreement and we, there is something that we could work with, in my view. The key issue for us, the urgent issue, is what you do about ISIS. And uh, I think that uh, uh, for us, this political settlement is a more longer term uh, issue. The ISIS is the, the, the urgent issue. And I, I suspect we could get uh, progress with the Russians on this, uh, perhaps, and, and then we can bring, the, uh, bring others along. But I think without us, it will be difficult, if we especially oppose it. And well, I think I haven't seen it either, yeah. uh, the, this draft constitution. And if they take it to Geneva, that would be yeah. a sign that they want they to broaden take it to the, UN. the base of, of support. But without bringing on certainly Saudi Arabia's acquiescence, right. There's just that's, what no I, that's the question. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, if I they don't that. come into it, it's, it's going to go nowhere. Yeah. No, they're, they well, can, and they're not even They can the keep table. Syria you know, exactly. in a civil war status. And I don't know whether, sorry, uh, that the Turks would go as far as they, if they have gone. Uh, and I, I, I'm not sure no, that yeah. they have without talking to the Saudis. So. Yeah, good. Yeah. Uh, and I would yeah. add, uh, even in the Obama administration, there were clear signals in the last few months of a willingness to accept the Russian dominant role, if Russia would then join in the anti-ISIS right. anti coalition. Right. They're, they're linked. Yeah. Yeah. They're linked. Yeah. 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 So in terms well, of your question, I think if, if the Russians are able to pull this off, which is a, a real outside possibility, right. because it's not just the Kurds and Turkey, and it's not just the regime and the Kurds and Turkey, but it's the regime, Kurds, Turkey, Iran, Saudi Arabia. Right. And exactly. that becomes, and, and we would, if you're able to pull it off, and then we brought uh, about an agreement with Russia dealing with ISIS, I think Washington would be very happy. Right. Good. Well, this has gone on, but I, I hope you all benefited from their wisdom. Any, any questions? Yes? You'll get, you'll get a microphone at some point. Thank you. I'm Ali Dodd Mafinez. I'm with the West Asia Council. My question has to do with the way you see the potential for the Trump administration to bring about a paradigm shift in a region of the world which for the past quarter century has gone from bad to worse with millions of refugees, a terrorism problem that has now affected Europe and is undermining the integrity of the European Union. And so I wonder whether we could envision a fundamental paradigm shift in the role of the United States and its leadership in that region that would bring about a different outcome altogether. Thank you. Let, let me tell you, what, what paradigm shift do you want? <laughs> uh, a cessation of uh, forever war, for example, hey, and uh, a, pr and a way of dealing with the refugee crisis, which is undermining international stability. Hmm. Well, I don't know. Any, well, any? Uh, I would say that ambitious paradigm shifts in the past, some would say, have not produced uh, uh, <laughs> a, a very uh, big positive results. So my, uh, my judgment is that the administration is uh, likely to focus sharply on 
how it defines uh, primary American interests and to go and protecting those. And ISIS being, ISIS being at the top, uh, security of Israel uh, being at the top. Uh, maybe uh, uh, some strengthening of relations with uh, friends and allies and some ad additional pressure to push back on Iranian kind of uh, th th threats. Uh, uh, but not to go uh, with a, a big American kind of grand design uh, to, to normalize this region uh, uh, and reshape it uh, after its own image. Uh, uh, that will be that will be my, uh, my judgment uh, uh, based on what one hears uh, from the senior people who are in the administration. You. I, I would only add that I think um, the perception of disengagement in the last, certainly in the second uh, term of the Obama administration, I think it, what we're going, and I have no way of knowing uh, what the Trump administration is going to do in the region, but my guess is that there's not going to be more engagement. I think that was the, if you look at the issue from purely American national interests, I don't see the U.S. Uh, returning to you know the level of engagement Iraq or pre-Iraq days. So I think we're going to see an increase um, in regional players mm -hmm. uh, either becoming more coordinated, although I'm never very optimistic on that front, but certainly taking uh, decisions into their own hands, and we've seen that already, I think, mm -hmm. over the last few years. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think you will see Russia uh, more engaged, and I think they, the regional players, are now looking at Russia, they're looking at China, they're strengthening relations with India. I think they've seen the writing on the wall that the U.S., even with this new administration, is going to be more of a, um, you know, taking a bit of a isolationist view and not getting involved in a big way. I don't know if Dan Yeah, I, I would just add one point, which, mm -hmm. um, in a way, the executive order this weekend identified this administration's axis of evil. You have seven countries that have now been identified as, as the countries that we are not going to want to deal with. Um, Saudi Arabia was not on that list. Egypt was not on that list. So at best, I think you're going to find an administration that wants to do some repair work, put some Band-Aids on the bilateral relationships with the countries that felt alienated over the past few years of the Obama administration. But the paradigm shift that you may be thinking about of you know, getting into the kind of Marshall Plan thinking of changing the way the Middle East uh, looks at itself and, and fixes its problems, I'd be exceedingly doubtful in this administration. I would, uh, uh, I have high regards for Dan. Uh, I wouldn't uh, use the same terminology of the axis of evil equivalent to this, uh, whatever one thinks of. <laughs> That was what's called a diplomatic disagreement. Yeah. Yeah. In the sense that, you know, I, I, th I think we, we have, uh, uh, for example, take the case of Iraq. Uh, it's a, uh, uh, I think we have a strong relationship, defense, uh, perhaps stronger than we do with a lot of others who are not on the list. Uh, 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 F-16 pilots are being trained, F-16s are being sold. We have a very strong security relationship with, uh, with the Kurds, uh, strength getting stronger uh, uh, by the day. Uh, so I would not read uh, 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 that in that way that these are the, the worst <laughs> in terms of a threat to the U.S. from the region. 
It certainly uh, feels that way. Well, it, I, I know, <laughs> I, I know that maybe, uh, maybe uh, there is something that be, could be said about how it has been marketed yeah. uh, and described <laughs> and uh, in the way it has been done, but I wouldn't. I would uh, think that uh, I mean, a slight. If, if only they'd give us their oil, we would be a great. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, we'll just go <laughs> take it. You know. This is what the man said. You know. Barbara. I, 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 yeah. Barbara. <laughs> Our friends. <laughs> Still not uh, the thanks, so, uh, Barbara Slavin. <laughs> um, the the visa ban, though. Um, including Iraq, uh, we've seen already some commentary from Baghdad suggesting that they should, they're going to throw the yeah, Americans sure. out. Is that just expected noise? They can't possibly do it because they need us because of ISIS. All right, you've already had. I wanted to pass the microphone, though, to uh, Jim Loeb, who had a question. No, that was my question. That was your question. Ah, what can I say? Journalists think alike. Okay. <laughs> yeah, he's not done yet. Do you have another one? Okay. <laughs> that was the beginning. He wants to expand the question. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> The broader implications of the visa ban, no matter how it was ruled out, uh, particularly with respect to Iraq, since we've invested so much there, and how people on the ground will take it. Sure. Um, but it's addressed to the whole panel as well. Well, if I could start, I, w I think that uh, this is a temporary ban. Uh, terrorism is a serious issue. Uh, 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 hopefully, although I have my own observations about the way it was done and w what, w uh, how it could have been done differently, is that it could lead to a, to a, a, a reasoned debate uh, that takes into account, obviously, our security, but also takes into account uh, the, how it affects our friends, uh, those who are fighting terrorism in the region, and how it affects the growth of terrorism or the weakening of terrorism, and our, of course our values. And I think this is uh, this has opened uh, a debate uh, that uh, hopefully a recent discussion can produce uh, an outcome that meets all of those uh, concerns. So. Uh, I mean, I have concerns that people who helped me as ambassador to Iraq or uh, Afghanistan or uh, helped our military I wouldn't want them to be <laughs> negatively affected, although there has been some, uh, uh, already some effects. Uh, so there are issues, but I think uh, uh, that given the threat to the homeland and that terrorism is a reality, some review of whether we need to tighten and how to do it. Uh, in a way that uh, meets all those other criteria is, 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 is uh, uh, if, if it leads to a, a, a reasoned debate, uh, uh, it could, it could uh, uh, the effects in the region must be taken into account maybe more minimal if we immediately go as to what it is and what it isn't. Yeah, the question moving forward is whether yeah. or not the administration keeps shooting from the hip right. and then fixing problems right. after they've shot or whether they do some planning. I, right after 9-11, a directive came around saying special visa procedures for anyone born in Iran, Iraq, Syria, a bunch of countries. I was in Israel at the time. A large part of the Israeli population were born right. in Iran, Iran Iraq, Iran, Iran. <laughs> all of those. And I was not allowed to give them visas, including former president, the late Yitzhak Navon. Right. So, you know, this was a case of that administration having shot from the hip but after, you know, yeah. for, for good reason. I mean, we had right. just been attacked, 
as opposed to this administration, which is putting out executive orders without vetting them properly, going through legal procedures, checking with heads of department. Uh, and that's, sure. that's really the difference right. that we're talking about. Can I add one more thing very quickly? Yes. Mm -hmm. I think uh, all the countries in the region understand very well the security issues. They've all suffered from terrorism. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that would not be an issue. The issue, uh, I think, from their perspective is that um, instead of uh, putting something out that increases your security by you know, doing extreme vetting, whatever that means. I think four years is vetting enough. But anyway, if you if you want to do more vetting, whether they're refugees or, or visitors. visitors visa, th nobody would have objected to that. I think what's very insulting to the region is that they feel that they've been put on there primarily because they're Muslim countries, and second, because they're Muslim countries that are in conflict, which is the worst time to put that kind of restriction on them since a lot of them are trying to do family reunification and immigration. So I think the way it was done was a huge mistake. If you care about what other countries think of you, if you don't, then maybe, um, as Dan says, we just correct mistakes and we go on, so. Yes, back there, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, I'm Harlan Ullman with the Atlantic Council. I'd like to provoke and challenge the, the panel uh, this way about a paradigm shift. Could there not be an implosion in the region? Mm -hmm. And this is based on a, a quasi-isolationist view, what Trump may or may not want to do with Russia and concessions, that his focus in that part of the region is anti-ISIS, which means it's going to be Yemen, it's going to be Iraq and Syria, but in a very constrained way. And of course, we haven't really seen how he's going to deal with China. So I think that the possibility of the steps that Mr. Trump may take could really cause the region to implode, uh, not the opposite. And I just wanted your comments if you thought that through at all. Tell me, what do you yeah. mean by that sort of? Well, we've done very well with the whole refugee immigrant problem, which has really been a great plus for us, which has started things off. Um, Supposing Mr. Trump does not listen to now, Mr. Nunes, what, what would an implosion be in your? Uh, you have a widespread, you have a widespread uh, continuation of uh, anti-Americanism, of radicalism. You have an American quasi or American withdrawal from making the region as important in the past, so a vacuum is complete, is uh, made, and that the focus is going to be on anti. Islamic State activities, which is going to be more special forces and drones, which are going to exacerbate many of the tensions in the region. And how we deal with Saudi Arabia really remains to be seen, but part of this could be a withdrawal from the uh, Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. I mean, this is a perfect storm in essence, uh, but after the last 10 days, I'm not sure it's something that should be immediately discounted <laughs> as fiction. Well, I mean, the region is, very unstable, as uh, I don't have to tell you that. So uh, you could draw these, some of these scenarios regardless of uh, the U.S. role. But the U.S. role, I do not agree myself that we're going to end up exactly as you describe, although there is some uncertainty. For example, uh, if you uh, read uh, what the Secretary of Defense said, in his confirmation hearing. Uh, you can draw from that uh, that we're going to be in some ways more engaged uh, on missile defense, for example. He emphasized 
and regional partnerships. Uh, what he said would be mu music to the ears of, as you said, to some Sorry. of the, uh, some of our traditional allies. Uh, but uh, uh, what I was saying about the, uh, the U.S. not having a grand design to transform this region, uh, uh, it doesn't mean that if uh, to serve those specified U.S. interests, narrowly defined, would, could be done with disengagement. You couldn't achieve those goals effectively without disengagement, uh, with disengagement and, with, 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 and without partnerships uh, and strong relationship and significant capabilities in the area. It, it was, uh, uh, so I, uh, I, I, sometimes we give ourselves uh, an our role more credit in shaping the region. Uh, it, it does happen occasionally, but largely what I think has happened is what my colleague here has said, which is the role of regional players have become more important. Mm -hmm. And there, uh, my, my hope is that over time, and here we can help, that Saudi Arabia, Iran, and Turkey could reach some understanding on, uh, among themselves about the future of this region with Israel, perhaps if not directly in, involved through dotted line involved as to some rules of the game and uh, mutual accommodation uh, between them. Uh, and uh, here, again, a balance of power among these players would be, would be uh, helpful, and I believe that we, we could play a role in that as well. You know, the, well, uh, the, if I just may add yeah. one point. They, what's interesting about the question is you can think of all kinds of scenarios, but in a sense, that kind of a question flows from the fact that as Marcel and Zal have been saying, this is a region where state actors have given way to either non-state actors right. or to uh, countries on the periphery, being Turkey, Iran, and Israel, effectively. Uh, Saudi Arabia as well, but uh, the three determinants of, of regional events in the future are very much going to depend on the interaction of those three countries. So um, does it it, it, will there be an implosion in other places? There is now, mm -hmm. whether you want to count Libya, Yemen, Syria, and those kinds of things can happen. Whether or not it starts to encompass the three primary determinants of power relationships, I think is, uh, is not likely to happen uh, because they're acting, in a sense, out of more traditional balance of power interests than... Uh, right. Than not. Let's, very let's take sure. let's take one last question. You, you, Ibrahim yeah. Mohseni from University of Maryland. So, from the beginning of this session today up until now, there's been a big elephant missing in this room. Would you speak into the microphone? Yes, yeah. and that's the Iranian election coming up uh, in less than four months. Um, do we, should we have any favorites in that election? <laughs> and secondly, how do you think the visa ban as well as the uh, promised upcoming sanctions and more pressure on Iran, how do you think that will affect that election? <laughs> well, and to answer for, your first question, we should have no candidates. Yeah. <laughs> it's sure that if we go after Rouhani, he's dead. <laughs> yeah. if, if, if Trump should do that. But uh, I don't know if you... You would. Well, Ali, what would you say? Yeah, yeah that's for the... Iranian elections no, are famously unprecedented. unpredictable, so we won't mm. make any predictions at this stage. Mm. Yeah. 
I was just going to add, I mean, I think it's, uh, it's in our interest that the moderates are key players in Iran, and I think the current situation uh, is not looking good for them, uh, especially with the new administration, and they feel threatened. And I think the new sanctions will make them also more angry, and they may look at Rouhani as not having delivered, but I am not an Iran expert, and I have no idea what that could mean in an election. But certainly, it, it, it's a area of concern. But you're not suggesting we should announce ourselves in favor of... Oh, Rouhani. God, no. <laughs> oh, kiss of death. <laughs> no. Well, okay. Well, thank you very much for staying here. And thanks, Barbara and the Atlantic Council. Uh, this is our third, and you haven't heard the last of us on, on this subject. So thank you for coming. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank the panel, thank the wonderful panel. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.